Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Horror Drafts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brantley Palmer, joined as always by my fellow co-host, Mr. Nicholas Schwartz. Nick, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm, I'm great as always. Happy nice. to be here, Brantley. Same here. How are you? Good. <laughs> I'm good, man. I was just swimming with my daughter for uh, about an hour and a half up the hill, which was a, a blast. Uh, she's like a water baby. She loves to be in there. So uh, nice. it was great. And it's a hot, hot day here. It's like uh, yep. 92 degrees today. So uh, it was perfect. I'm very excited today because we are joined by two wonderful guests. Uh, Greg Anderson is a Los Angeles-based post-production worker in television and film. And Michael from Portland, but everybody calls him Murph, is also here. And together, they are two-thirds of the co-hosts of the wonderful podcast, The Weekly Podcast Massacre. And we are so happy to have them both. Murph and Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Brantley. What's up, man? Uh, very, uh, very honored to be here, actually. Yeah, thank you. Big fan oh. of the podcast. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're very honored to have you both on here. I, I'm, we're huge fans of your podcast as well. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be on here. Nice. Yeah, thank Excellent. you for taking the time. Oh, totally. Yeah, Nick, so. very nice. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Excellent. Uh, well, gentlemen, uh, we are here to draft 90s horror films. Uh, this is going to be a mega draft, everybody. We're doing another 10-rounder because this is a big topic. 40 movies are going to come off the board. Uh, and before we started recording, we rolled our wonderful trusty four-sided die. I will be leading off the draft. Then it will go to Nick. Then it will go to Murph. And then it will go to Greg. All right? So that is our order. But before we get into the draft and everything like that, we always started off nice and easy. We like to just easy breezy roll into our podcast by checking in with everybody and seeing what they're watching listening to reading or otherwise consuming and of course our guests are going to start us off uh murph what have you been enjoying lately Ooh, uh i just finished outer range on oh. amazon prime it's uh i actually i really enjoyed it it's more sci-fi kind of western josh brolin nice uh I, my lady friend had never seen twin peaks so we're doing kind of a rewatch through that excellent and uh i saw maverick without mm. seeing the original oh really <laughs> and i i loved it although not as much as greg i feel oh interesting yeah. well uh i don't know i even lo- i i really enjoyed my time with maverick but like i don't know if loved is the word i'd use i enjoyed it it is like the movie the movie it's so classically cinematically in an action film but so i had a great time with it but uh yeah so obviously i also saw maverick i ended up mm-hmm. seeing that twice well, in theaters yeah you uh, were yeah. on vacation and went <laughs> and to went go, to go see, see it, it during downtime <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh awesome i did the same uh actually my wife and i were on cape cod and we got a night alone uh with someone watching our daughter and we went to the movies and we went and saw top gun maverick so there you yeah, go. Yeah, hey, that's a great way to escape. You know, yeah. when you're in another <laughs> place. Yeah, I took my dad the second time because it's like, how do you not take your father to go see Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> but um, yeah. Aside from that, um, I've been, I literally I'm way behind on this, but uh, I just started watching The Boys, which is actually a show mm-hmm. that my company has done some work for. Oh, nice. Uh, from oh, since nice. the first season, but I'm just now getting around to it. Uh, enjoying that for what it is. As somebody a little like you know, kind of maybe tired of uh comic book movies it's a nice mm. way to like kind of jab at it while also kind of getting that fix and nice. um aside from that i've been reading a ton of elmore leonard books oh if awesome like a crime fiction fan it's like it's really fantastic stuff i just finished kill shot watch the uh mickey work adaptation of that 
<laughs> didn't cool. stack up, but it's a great book, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then just for listening to, I've been uh, really enjoying um, the uh, the sweet, was it, I think the believe they're Swedish, the metal band Ghost. Their oh, most okay. recent album came out in the past couple months and is uh, really good stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of the things I've been into lately. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I love the boys. I'm excited that the new season is out. I don't know if I, anyone here has has read the comics. I think it's such a vast improvement on the comics. I mean, <laughs> my gosh, I, you know, they they started out decent, but there's just if there's such like this edge lord tone to the comics that just gets yeah. so like ugh, dreary and like eye rolly at times. Yeah, I know the reputation of Garth Ennis. I've read a yeah. couple of his his stuff, and it it, it sounds like the pre- his, un, the premise under him is not something I'm interested in either. Yeah, yeah. Show, though, is, it finds the right balance. You know, it, it's managed it, to be, yeah, absolutely gross like, and out there, but also it's still enjoyable to actually experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Preacher was the same way. Like I, they seem to be able to to rein it in and and give it somewhat a you know a tonally cable. Uh, package to give you yes yes although although i will say watching preacher i felt like oh okay this season's gonna be stuck in this location because of monetary constraints it was like <laughs> yeah you definitely felt definitely. the cable version of it because it wasn't as like um wide-ranging as the the graphic novel was i'm like this is like a road trip series basically but we're confined to like different locations each season basically especially what was it the third season they like go to his family or whatever it's like okay i guess this is where we are now exactly yeah yeah and i think that's where i left off i didn't i don't think i've touched there's a final fourth season right yeah yeah and i haven't i haven't watched that one um but yeah, it was just it was just very telling. You could so feel it in that show. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. And Ruth Negga is phenomenal. I will watch like anything oh, yeah. she's in. She's just an amazing actress. Um, but you just you really felt the oh this is the constraints we're dealing with with this show unfortunately. But yeah, the boys is fantastic. I really love the changes they've done. How, how far are you into the show, uh, Greg? I don't uh, want to ruin anything. Two episodes, but you know. Oh, of the first season. It, like, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like working on it, I catch bits and pieces of what's happening yeah. in the plot and specifics here and there and so like i I've, I've known for a long time it's something i would be into it's just like you know it's something you work on sometimes i have to distance myself from something yeah uh and so it just took me a long time to finally like get around to it oh yeah i hear you. i used to work in sports television and that zapped so much of my love of baseball out of me and i <laughs> yeah it took me a long time <laughs> after four years working for nesson uh the new england sports network which is owned by the red sox and bruins uh it took me a long time to get back into watching baseball even like an occasional game here or there. Yeah. Network yeah. TV is not something I like fully appreciate. I mean, I don't think of it the same way anymore, you know, after you spend yeah. some time working in it. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Um, well, that's wonderful. Uh, Nick, man, what about you? What have you been into lately and enjoying? Uh, I've actually, this is the first time I think we've, uh, we've had this part of the, the show and I've actually seen like more than one movie. So um, oh, I don't nice. know where to begin, Brantley. Like, I'm overwhelmed with... <laughs> I could run through them all and just give you a one word. No, um, I'll stick to horror stuff. I'm like going back in my uh, letterbox list to remind myself what I saw. Um, I watched Off Season, which is, um, I think, a Shutter exclusive. Um, decent. I liked it. Uh, okay. Starts off strong and uh, loses a little bit of steam, but it, it was. I recommend watching it if you're into um, like supernatural horror. 
Um, what's that? What's that about? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I I do mind actually. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. Um, so right. let's move on. Sorry, no, sorry. Um, <laughs> please, please. I I apologize. I <laughs> know <laughs> um, uh, a uh, a young woman and her husband. Like she gets word that her mother has, like, I guess her mother's been dead for a while. She gets word that her mother's grave has been vandalized and her mother lives on this like really remote island that's closed throughout like half of the year due to flooding okay. and like high water just like or whatever so they go on like the last day that it's open and basically get stuck there um and her mother has been like warning her never to go there she didn't want to be buried there to begin with because it's cursed or whatever and that's all i'll say but it's it's cool it's an interesting premise and okay um yeah it's okay it's good i recommend it like it was fun nice. i'm definitely not Sorry, I watched it. Um, but I really liked... I saw A Ghost Waits, which is a movie I'd been wanting to see for a long time since I heard Arrow was releasing it. Um, I think it was made in like 2020 or 2019, but um, that's on Shutter now as well. I, I just ordered the Blu-ray. Um, it's like a micro-budget, and you can tell, and nothing against that at all. You're just like... If you're at all interested in it, be warned. Like it looks and feels like a micro budget movie, um, okay. black and white, which is actually really nice. Um, mm. And uh, it's a it's like a romantic comedy haunted house movie, but it's the sweetest movie. It's like I wouldn't call it like when you say romantic comedy, I feel like there's some negative connotation. It is like the sweetest sort of like love story, and it's okay. just handled in this like I, I was blown away i really loved it it's not scary it's not really a horror movie but it belongs on here i mean you can watch it on shutter so i think it's appropriate to talk about and i really can't recommend it enough okay wonderful and that's about it okay awesome uh well like i mentioned i watched top gun maverick uh with the wife so that was a lot of fun i hadn't been to the theater uh in a while so that was that was uh that was a fun experience Perfect one to go back for. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, and she hadn't, I, I, she probably hadn't seen the first one in, you know, several, several years, but you know, I mean, she had a blast as well. So even if it's been a while for anyone um, who wants to go, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. I didn't need any, re- I mean, everything yeah. culturally reference point. I, I feel like I understood Tom Cruise mm-hmm. is a badass. He's, you know, from the, <laughs> what was it? 2008, uh, election i knew maverick is what it's supposed to be so <laughs> yeah it's nice. ideal yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent yeah and well and honestly you know the movie really like the people that it ties back to you see enough of them in like photographs and like you kind of get the backstory in the uh in right, the sequel yeah. so you, you really yeah it really kind of fills in some gaps for you if anyone hasn't seen the original so yeah it i didn't you know, know that at was... one point Anthony Edwards played Great Balls of Fire. You know? Yes, sure. that's the, exactly. The important context. I didn't know that Meg they, Ryan. They I, did, mm-hmm. I really did not yeah. know Meg Ryan was in that movie. Oh, she's one of yep. the better like performances in that. She's like spectacular and a pretty like could it could have been a much smaller, much like less uh, you know flashy role, but she really like, brings it up to life in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's great, and uh, she's Miles Teller's mom. So there you go. that's all you. Need. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, the, I've seen a, a, a couple other things, but the two I really wanted to talk about was, um, uh, the offer, which is a 10 part mini series on Paramount plus about the making of the original, the Godfather. Oh, yes. oh right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Miles Teller. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, which, uh, I thought was fantastic. 
I have not done anything research-wise about whether <laughs> how historically accurate it is. I honestly am not that I'm concerned. Sure all of it tracks. I yeah. yes, I'm sure exactly. It's all one to one. Exactly. <laughs> well, did you ever read the the kid stays in the picture, the Robert Evans autobiography? Okay, I did not read the book. I have seen the documentary of the same okay. name, although it has been like 15 years probably, uh, or more, the, honestly. But yeah. The book is phenomenal, and if you can get the audiobook where Evans reads it himself, it is worth nice. throwing down that money. <laughs> That's excellent. I'm, I'm going to look forward to that now. And I love Matthew Good's performance as um, mm. Robert Evans, and I f- catch myself doing matthew good's impression of bob (laughs) evans all the time so (laughs) it's just a fun voice to play with so it is it is uh, a lot of fun and uh and yeah it's a blast oh and juno temple is fantastic and there's tons of great performances Mm. in it but i really want to shout out both matthew good and juno temple who i thought were fantastic uh in the series and uh and were really good and then the other series that i finally got around to watching was severance on apple tv which has anybody else seen that at all? I, that's on the list. I'm dying I to watched, see it. Okay. I watched two episodes, and I need to get back into it because I really mm. did enjoy the dark comedic aspects of it. It's yep. It was it's heavy, it and is. I feel like I digest it and maybe take it a little too personal, you know, uh. in a corporate <laughs> role in my own professional life. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um. It's so interesting because I I would classify it as horror, although I, I can understand why people, other people would not. Um, and it's sort of the, I mean, there's certainly corporations have been the setting of horror films in the past, like things like Belko Experiment, Mayhem, things like that. And of course, corporations play a large part in a number of other horror films. Um, but this is the first thing I can think of where it's almost like, corporation as horror like 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 i don't know how else to describe it it's just sort of like um the cultish devotion that is like given to corporations and the people who run them um and it's like a real kind of um i don't know like examination of that and it really rung true in this day and age where we have these billionaires who have gotten just vastly more wealthy just in the past two years during the pandemic and things like that and and how like uh much these corporations can just like run rampant because there's so little regulation essentially um so it was very compelling yeah i think it it's so horrifying because you you know that if this was possible they would be doing it exactly exactly and you're only two episodes in, so I don't want to say anything, but it's very interesting to see um, how people treat each other, even aspects of themselves. And anyway, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to okay. ruin anything for anybody, but it's just, it's very, I find it very interesting on in a number of different ways. And it's hard to talk about without like going into aspects that would spoil things for people. So I don't want to do that. I would just, just recommend that everybody check it out. Cause I think it is a really fantastic series. Uh, just the, the little bit that I've seen, you know, uh, Adam Scott's great. John Turturro mm-hmm. is amazing. Zach Cherry is hilarious. Britt Lauer is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love Britt Lauer. I loved her since man seeking woman. And she is, really compelling in the show and 
Patricia is, Arquette. Is great. Yeah, oh, she's wow. fantastic too. I mean, it's yeah, it's really. I she was in this. Oh yeah, yeah well I, she she was in Escape at Danamora that Ben Stiller also did that yeah. miniseries, and yeah. I don't know if that was. I, don't, I have no idea if they'd worked together before that, but obviously they had a great relationship from that, and she came back for this. So, yeah, Christopher Walken too, right? Am I wrong? Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I'm so, shocked yeah. with that cast. I have not watched it yet. But in the same boat as Nick, though. It's on the list. It's just uh, yeah. yeah, need to get to it. Oh yeah, I mean, if you've listened to this podcast, you know how often The Great got recommended to me before I finally watched the first <laughs> season, and then oh, yeah, like yeah. I loved it as well. So I still have to watch season two, but. Uh, because I watched the offer in severance in this time since our last record. <laughs> so anyway, uh, all right, wonderful. Well, that is what we've been watching or otherwise consuming, but now it's time to get down to business. We're going to draft nineties horror films. Now, if you listen to the eighties horror mega draft, you know that we are going to go by when the movie was released, either theatrically or straight to video. If it was straight to video. So that meant that movies that weren't eligible in our 80s draft, but that might have been made in the 80s, but weren't released until 1990 or later, are eligible for the 90s horror mega draft. Now, the two most prominent examples of that would be Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which was made in 86, I believe, but was not released until January 1990. So that is available now in the 90s horror mega draft, as is Tremors, which was originally intended to come out in 89, but did not get its initial release until January 1990. So both of those are on the board for the 90s horror mega draft as well as anything else released between 1990 and 1999 now uh, i believe we mentioned the order before but i'm going to remind folks uh, i will be starting it off and then it will go to nick and then murph and then greg so greg will uh round out the end of round one but then we'll get the back-to-back to start round two uh before we begin the last thing we need to do is establish commissioner Now, we've already talked to Murph and Greg, and they are going to share commissioner responsibility in this episode. So, if one of them says a movie is not eligible, or or is not horror, or whatever, and they rule with their iron fist, and the other disagrees, well, then we might have a tie, but that will be decided by a round of rock, paper, scissors between Murph and Greg. Mm-hmm. That will be the deciding factor should a tie come in and the commissioners <laughs> between the commissioners. So without further ado, wait, further sorry, ado. Nick, go no, ahead. Have, one thing I wanted to, to just double check. I know we talked about it a little bit, Brantley. Made mm-hmm. for TV movies don't count or is it just made for TV miniseries that don't count? Oh, I thought we were doing just feature films, either released in theaters or straight to video, but not made for TV. Nothing made for But I will leave that up, actually, to our guests, because I don't know how they approached it, so I would like to hear their thoughts. Yeah, I don't have anything against, like, TV uh, miniseries being included. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, maybe there's not many I would pick personally, but I also think that, you know, they are an essential part of what makes, like, 90s horror um okay of them of course like spring to mind so yeah i'm cool with them being included okay i'm fine it's not something i was necessarily considering uh but like you know there are a couple big things that came out in the 90s that are i think very influential very important and yeah and a lot of lasting yeah it's like a lot of staying power and lasting impact i okay i did want to just throw out real quick i it's it's a it's an interesting decade is is Mm -hmm. it not because i feel like 80s is kind of the high watermark of horror like we had so many you know coming out of the 70s into 80s but then it it seemed to burn itself out 
really quickly getting mm-hmm. into the 90s until we had some revitalization with a couple other big tent poles. But it seems that 90s was the thriller decade. And oh. a lot of those can be also considered horror, but mm-hmm. it, it seemed that that was the way that the the current was going. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also, and it's something we've kind of discussed uh, previously in our second episode on prestige horror, which is a lot of times the thriller moniker was just sort of rebranding in a lot of ways in the 90s. Oh, totally. because yeah. yeah, because the horror cycle had, as you were saying, especially that slasher cycle, had really like run its mm-hmm. course. So it was a way to be like, well, if we're considered horror, people won't take us seriously. So we're saying we're a thriller, actually. And, like, we saw that very specifically with Silence of the Lambs. Like, I think we talked yeah. in that episode where, like, did, um, yeah. yeah, I think the, the story I'd heard was, like, Fangoria wanted to come to the set and, like, see how, like, they were doing certain things and all that and write a feature on them. And they were like, well, if you come to the set, everyone will think we're horror and we want to be we want to be a thrill you know we want to be considered a thriller and that also actually started in the book cycles as well when horror um publishing was like not as unless you were stephen king or dean Koontz or like one of these big names and rl stein or something um they started moving more into like this isn't a horror novel this is a thriller as well and so those kind of played off each other both in film and um in the book publishing arena so yeah in a lot of ways and look, we've talked about it on this podcast. Genre is like fluid, and so like, who oh, cares? That's entirely what our podcast is about. Is exactly, just inventing yeah. new genres to stick stuff into. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So I have a very loose definition of what is horror. I just said Severance was to me a horror series. Now I think a lot of people might disagree, but to me, like, there's a big umbrella to horror, and lots of things can fit underneath it, and. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with exa- a lot of what you're saying, and agree that thrillers often are essentially just horror movies rebranded. It's a lot of a lot of the ones that I was looking at for the '90s. It, they they would be horror if there was any supernatural as- aspect to them, but they're all sure. usually the human intricacies. I'm not yeah. going to give any because someone might choose one. But yeah, there's there, I have sure. a whole <laughs> list. I made multiple <laughs> lists. Oh, interesting. So I'm very, I'm very curious how this draft will go because yeah. I was watching it, but I felt like I had like had a pretty good grasp on '90s horror, and um, and I've also I think we've said on this podcast too that I think people kind of discount the '90s or act like '90s horror didn't start until '96 with a certain yeah. film that I'm sure is going to get drafted early in this draft. But I would argue that there's actually a lot more in the first half of that decade that is often overlooked just because that oh, cycle yeah, has sort of run its course. So yeah, I'd, I'd be curious was, where people are going to draft I was, here. Uh, after the invite, I was rewatching a lot to kind of refresh my memory on a few things and kind of, you know, think a few things over. And I kind of I did gravitate towards that first half of that decade because it is, it is a really interesting blend of like you know there's still a lot of 80s sensibilities left over yeah uh but combined with effects getting better <laughs> budgets mm-hmm. getting higher and it may, it's a really cool mix and like a weird capper on the 80s in a lot of ways that first yes. half of the 90s yeah absolutely absolutely yeah i don't want to i don't i don't want to shit on the 80s because there's a thousand movies that i love from the 80s but i think that did come up in our 80s mega draft is like the 90s gets discounted um at the time though i think it was like we were maybe the discussion was like the 90s like very 
appropriately gets discounted. But I think it is just, no, it's a bunch of overlooked movies. I think the 80s is dominated by a bunch of series that have like a mm-hmm. humongous oh, yeah, impact. franchises for sure. That ended up burning out in the 90s. So that I burned out in the 90s. Exactly yep. that. Until yeah. Scream came around. Well, sorry. The 1996 movie that we're not going to mention <laughs> came around and revitalized. But really, it didn't. Rev- I think people talk about that, like it revitalized the horror genre. When in fact, I think it really just kind of like reinvented the slasher genre. And I the first half of the '90s has plenty of great, like one-off horror movies that just don't fall into that. Yeah. Specific it, subgenre. It is like a shot of adrenaline to, exactly, to something exactly that, that was like petering out. But you know, mm-hmm. still, still, there was a heartbeat. There was a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was surprised when we were going through this. Like, I was going through my list, and I was like, oh, man, after that 80s horror mega draft, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to pick 40 movies, but it was really easy. I'm going to have a hard time narrowing it down to 10. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, assuming you get those done. Well, that's why I'm very well, curious yeah. how it's going to shake out, because, I mean, there's, there's some movies yeah. yeah, that are, like, lower on my list that I think might be higher on others, but I also don't know how you two are approaching. And this is this is how every draft works out. Is you never know how other people <laughs> are approaching it, so it's a risk with whatever you take. But um, but without further ado, let's get into the draft. So I'm on the board. There's a certain film from 1996 that is one of my absolute <laughs> favorites, as it is many other people's. And I, it would be odd, I think, if almost anything else was taken no okay look it would be odd if i took anything else uh other than this at number one and of course i'm talking about scream directed by Wes craven written by kevin williamson um uh yes it revitalized the horror genre but as we've also mentioned on this podcast you know that some of the things people give it credit for i think are over are a don't aren't accurate like people talk about it as like the first meta horror film which is 100 percent not true at all no. i mean it's not the first yeah. meta horror film it's not the first meta slasher it's not the first meta slasher of the 90s it's not the first meta slasher of the 90s directed by wes craven that's wes craven's new nightmare you know so yeah. which came out three years before or, or whatever it was yeah, so two to three years before it yeah yeah and and you know like i mean friday part six is pretty meta um a lot of brian de palma stuff is pretty meta towards like uh hitchcock and other like horror filmmakers of the past you know so I think this is the first one that just hit like an atom bomb in a way that revitalized um, the slasher subgenre that um, others just didn't have the same effect as. And it felt fresh. It felt new. It felt like new takes on um, that specific teen slasher type of film. And with good reason, because it's fantastic. And it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, I... If you'd listen to our, if you've listened to our Scream episode, you know the affinity I have for the Scream franchise. And Scream One, you know, is easily my favorite of the series. Um, I think it's diminishing returns um, after that. And I like Scream Two a lot. I don't want to say too much about it because I it very well could get drafted in this episode. But if you listen to the episode, you'll also notice I have some issues with Scream Two that I think a lot of people overlook. <laughs> um, uh, but they're there. Yeah. They're definitely there. I mean, but just basic character issues that no one seems to also point out like why is why is Sydney Prescott an actress I don't understand this choice at all for her like she's a shrinking violet in the first film even before the murders happen she wants nothing to do with like attention oh, I, being put on her I do hope I mean we'll have to wait for it to get drafted to talk about yes it, but there's, a, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to say about that acting stuff yeah yes we did cover it on our podcast. It was one of the first R, uh, sanctioned R-rated movies I ever watched, and I picked it oh. first. But it, I think it's so sleek in mm-hmm. a lot of what it's doing, 
and I think the the twists at the end are yeah. are what really uh, like cap everything off. And I don't Absolutely. know like how much spoilers we're going, but you know, fucking Billy Loomis getting yeah. stabbed and then coming back being the murderer yeah. is such a great. Uh, like it's he's built up the entire time and it's like well it's not him oh no it is him yeah absolutely and then to dash it with slicing him and then oh wait no he actually is coming back from the dead oh and by the way there's two killers so yeah. <laughs> you know thinking <laughs> thinking that that phone call when he was in prison exonerated him oh nope you know all that stuff so yeah it was we've talked about it again a lot on this podcast so i don't want to dwell on it but yeah scream it is the defining horror film of the 90s so i feel it is very uh apropos to choose it as the number one overall selection here but yeah it really is perfect as a like dividing line between the two parts because like, everything after yeah. scream had to be a bit like scream and I'm talking about its sleekness just the way it yep. looks compared to a lot of earlier 90s films like early 90s Wes craven's movies don't look that crisp and but you know yeah. like it's just it really was uh and like it's it's drenched in like the voice and like the feel of the 90s and like the you know the especially like the young horror fans at that time it feels like it is written in their voice and it really captured what people were how people talked about movies and how they especially like you know were fans of horror at that point absolutely yes 100 percent um nick you're up with the second selection of the first round um yeah i will it's already been mentioned i'll just i'm gonna go with silence of the lambs it, there's other ones I, i'm struggling because it's like the obvious pick but really it is just i'm just going by like one of the best horror movies ever <laughs> um i mean oscar winner like you can't i feel like i can't not put it at number one mm-hmm. yeah see this um, and this i do love it it's just you know it's one of the 90s pains this me to I just thought. pick that right away but yeah it's great but you have to. Yeah. You have it's to. gonna get taken first round. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and it's like it's done by such a great director. Like he was such a uh, collaborator of, of you know fellow artists and just his style of all the close ups really, you know, gets you into that creepiness of Lecter. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, I'll, I'll talk more about it. I didn't want to like step on anybody <laughs> else if it's their selection. But Nick, what, I mean, I'll jump in and talk about no, Silence of the Lambs if you want really, me I to. Like I, I think I picked it whenever it last came up. I think I was the one who picked it. So I, I've probably said my piece on it. So yeah, I, by all means. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> a masterful filmmaking by Demi uh, all the way around to putting you in the, in the shoes of Clarice Starling constantly in ways that would seem like they're breaking the fourth wall, I think, in a lesser made film. You know, like when you, she enters a room and just all the guys in it just turn and stare. And it's almost like they're staring right through the camera. And so they're staring right at you. And so you're in her position and you feel how small she must feel and, and how like ostracized she is as like the only woman in this position, essentially. Uh, so often being the only woman in the room uh, in a number of the scenes that she's in. Um, and, you know, essentially having to deal with that added layer of misogyny that she is dealing with from people, even if it's not spoken, it's like it's felt, essentially. Well, and she yeah, has that great scene <laughs> with Glenn Scott when they're in the car, and he's like, I'm sorry to do that to you. And she's like, well, all of these people look up to you, so you need to fucking be better about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
it's yeah. like, that movie is like a it's just a great confluence of like you have uh, a, a great director and we've said Jonathan Demi who has that very personal style and can put you in the shoes of a character like that and you know really does incredible work just with actors talking into a camera and it's mm-hmm. always feels more personal and more intimate when it's done by Demi for some reason yeah. um, but you have you have that aspect combined with just like Jodie Foster and like you know really committing to this role and uh, playing like a really fascinating character in Clarice and like uh she, she everything she does like the her accent and the way she moves in that character and her body language in the room f- surrounded by these guys that she's being strong-armed by constantly all the time being stared at and looked at like uh yeah the way she plays that is like is just spectacular you know not mm-hmm. to mention every other performance in that movie <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. But, yeah. Uh, even just the the, the visual of of being behind the glass is so striking every time like going to like like it's all iconic for a reason and then you yeah and then you come to him they're like we can't even like get allow him to have this this barrier (laughs) it's so crazy yeah yeah i I think i might be more of a manhunter guy (laughs) when it Mm -hmm. comes to these like these jonathan demi adaptations in the hannibal Lecter series but Still, every time I watch Silence, like I'm, it's it, it's up for debate every time because it is just that good. It's as good as Manhunter, which is a high compliment coming from me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I love it, and it's like it got me to read those books, and those two books are spectacular, mm-hmm. and just get you know, uh, yeah, it's it's I it's a great pick. I was that was really high on my list too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Nick, do you want to cap it off with anything else since it's your pick? Um. I do not. I just don't okay. have anything else to add to it. I wish I did. But no. All right. No, no worries. Said. You guys said it much better, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it. All right. Well, that means we're going to the third pick of the first round, and that's going to be from Murph. Murph, what do you got? All right. I, uh, I know you guys have talked about whether you want to use, you know, your head or your heart, and I kind of mm-hmm. – my initial list is – my heart, but then done in a head way. So mm. I'm going to uh, pick. I, I, so you guys say Scream is the, like the, the pinpoint of 90s. I think there's even another one that like comes even as close to it, maybe eclipsing it in, in what it's done for the genre, giving it another shot of adrenaline. I'm going with uh, from July 30th, 1999. The Blair Witch Project. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, it uh, it was such a unique marketing. I was mm-hmm. you know eleven years old at the time, and I was for sure there was a Blair Witch out there, and it was like a a terrifying concept to even mm-hmm. think about, and to have uh you know like a movie that's mirroring reality and it it just uh yeah the in shot of the guy hopping in the corner and then the camera falls over will get me every single time Mm -hmm. yeah that's uh, such a creepy visual to end that film and i remember also 
I mean, I was uh, not quite 14 when that came out. And so uh, I remember, I think, having seen like ads and stuff in like maybe Entertainment Weekly or some magazines and, and being like, oh, wow, this is interesting. And my mom having to explain, yeah, that it, it wasn't, they didn't really die. It's just like, that's just part <laughs> of the marketing because it was so believable at that time. And I'm sure there were people a lot older than us at the time who believed it as well uh, that, that, these filmmakers really did go into the woods and get lost and their footage was found like, and they put together this film. Um, and it was like just something that had never been done before to that degree. Cannibal Holocaust to, to again, to a degree, but yeah, I don't think they were ever specifically marketing that movie. Like it was a real yeah. life thing. It was, just, there had certainly was, been. Yeah. It Sorry. Was I didn't so mean to cut real. Off. That people were like, oh no, it looks so real that everyone was like, all right, we need to make sure this isn't real. Well, then it had yeah. like, the benefit of like bigger distribution than Cannibal Holocaust and like the and the internet, like using the early internet really well to also mm-hmm. kind of perpetuate that myth and everything. Uh, I had to date myself to talk about this movie because I was four when it came out. So, uh, <laughs> but literally, some of my favorite, uh, my my earliest memories, like hearing about horror, were my brother describing to me what happened in Blair Witch after he watched it. And uh, just the, the, those, those verbal descriptions recounted by, a, you know, by a nine-year-old, like really <laughs> scarred and terrified me at that age. So yeah, it was something that I wasn't even able to like bring myself to watch until the, like in the, you know, the, maybe the past three years. Cause it was just like on that in my brain as like, oh, that's horror. Mm. That's terrifying, hoary, like, you know, horrible stuff. And uh, I was, you know, I didn't get into horror until I was like a teenager. So like, uh, it was just something I had always put off. But yeah, watching it, it's like, even outside of all the cultural, you know, um, like, uh, like waves it made, like, it's a really, really well made and told like horror movie, where, uh, like the ambiguity about what's going on is it's really well done. And the way it's switching between the different camera stocks and, you know, you have like what they are shooting with the documentary and the behind the scenes stuff and how those both visually look. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really well performed. I think that actress mm-hmm. got a lot of negative heat after it came out it was, you know, yeah. people always criticize her acting, but I found her to be one of the better parts of the film, but yeah, I thought she's fantastic. I think the three of them are all, all do a great job. Uh, and the sound design of that film is fantastic and really sells that creepiness and that feeling yeah. and sense of dread that something is out there and is fucking with them. And it's it, it's done so simply at times, like them waking up and then there's just all of the little stick men like hanging mm-hmm. in the trees like that's so easy to do but so unsettling yeah absolutely absolutely i have to i have to jump in to just say because i'm this high on my list as well um i'm gonna there's another movie that i think i know cannibal holocaust was mentioned there's another one too comes a little bit later in fact it does come in the 90s and it will be on my list i don't oh, wow. expect it to be chosen so i'm probably going to pick it much later but i have to like plug it here because when we get to it <laughs> i'm going to <laughs> reference blair witch again so that's all i'll say about that but okay in terms of blair Witch's like lasting impact and stuff i also think you know this the film stocks and and the fact that it was shot partially on video like that was mentioned and i think it's just not just for like aspiring filmmakers, although at the time I already knew I wanted to like get into to movie making. It's just a great example of somebody 
you know, I don't know the story behind it, so I don't know if somebody had this Blair Witch. If I forget, if um, what what are their names? Sanchez and um, uh, oh, uh, Myrick. My yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. um, I probably have read it one time or another, but I don't remember if they had like this Blair Witch story and then they wanted to make a movie, or if they were just like, I want to make a movie. Let's like find a story that's going to fit in, you know, in terms like in our budget and our like the means that we have to make this movie and we'll just find the story that way it doesn't matter it's just if you're a filmmaker at that time and this like $30,000 movie or whatever it may have been 20s I forget um, gets wide release and becomes like you know the most profitable film in terms of like of all time and it was huge and it was such a cultural like it was such a moment in terms of like viral marketing I mean it like invented mm -hmm. that and the internet sort of like it's just incredible and to look at that and say like, um, I'm just gonna go make a movie. Like this is like these people just like they had, there was nothing, they didn't have anything. They found a way to make a film because they wanted to make movies, and they made a great one, uh, super effective, um, and they played like I think that movie plays so well to its low budget strengths. Like they do so much with that because that's what they had. Whereas mm -hmm. I think like conversely the opposite is true today when you see found footage a lot of them are found footage because they have no budget like they want to make a bigger movie i think you can tell but they're making something much smaller because there's no money involved and found footage is like an easy way to do that i don't think yeah, that was the case it's an here. excuse to have a like a cheaper look yes yeah like more, it's rare to see like a right, yeah. good found footage movie now because i think it, it for that. yeah the the effects don't have to be so great if it's shaky and then it moves real quick so. yeah ex exactly mm -hmm. and like <laughs> It's very effective. Like I will say, it's very effective to like, even Greg's without worked on marketing, plenty of to those. just like be in someone's perspective and to like being presented as like something real works really well. But like you know, these people like bought a camera and returned it, and like they and they made an amazing movie like within you know the limited means that they had, and uh, it's just as a filmmaker, I think it's just kind of an inspiring story. Yeah, it made it, it made filmmaking tangible in an era when you know before the capacity was nearly what it is now. Um, it made the it a possibility uh, then in the late nineties. Yeah, and I don't think like I think the performances are fine and like her performance is great. I think it's just that that image became like the poster, you know, the image that's like going up her nose. Um, right, the big mm -hmm. scene where she's she's finally like really breaking down. Yeah, and it was yeah. like. <laughs> I think just by virtue of being such a an impactful film, it was bound to be parodied a million times. And of course, that scene, being the most iconic scene, is the one that's like the most parodied. I think, and um, I think that's you know they they get an unfair rap. Also, not to mention the fact that they're like this is made on a shoestring. No one is like a professional actor, and they did an incredible job. Um, also, like like half of it was not even like scripted, right? I mean, like they had no idea what was happening, and they. You know, they were in the woods and all this shit happened to them. And they so it's like a lot of it actually is real, um, <laughs> more or less. I mean, like as as real as I can be, knowing that they were in a film production. I mean, but... yeah. I mean, uh, I believe some of the actors in the beginning of the interviewing are actual real townspeople, right? Like, yeah. there's some non-actors in there. I think I remember like, reading actually them. just responding to these questions that they're being given. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. a bit of it is real. <laughs> yep. And I think people, too, when people criticize her acting i think what they're probably doing is conflating their anger at some of the choices the character has made with yeah. her performance which i think That's is not 
you know, I think I think they're misconstruing things essentially. Because I understand being frustrated with her as a character, but I think her performance is pretty damn good. And in the nineties, it was just an acceptable level of misogyny. <laughs> to, yes. yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was gonna say. Was that like, yeah, they just have a problem with right. I mean, it, it is kind of fascinating when I watched it because I had. Um, you know, a different takeaway, I think, than a lot of people did at that time about, like, the decision she makes and everyone's like, oh, but she was... But when you watch that film, there is a bigger, I think, uh, takeaway from the fact that people were more annoyed with her than the two guys. <laughs> because yeah. everybody makes about the same mistakes. Like, no one mm-hmm. there is doing things the right way. Uh, it's just Absolutely. very funny that people then latch on to blaming her for things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, the misogyny mixed with, like, early internet era and message boards and stuff i'm sure (laughs) not a great combination (laughs) um all right well greg you're gonna finish out round one here with your uh fourth pick of the round but you will get the back-to-back with the first of the second so what's your first round selection all right so yeah my um my first round selection is going to be david lynch's twin peaks fire walk with me Ah. (laughs) i knew it i knew i had to get to it murph there was it had to be number one um yeah so i I am a massive massive uh david lynch fan as is murph as one of the things that we became friends over it's just our our mutual obsession with his work and um yeah twin peaks was a show that like i had heard about growing up a little bit and then got very very much into when i was in college and then uh when i first watched firewalk with me i think i had the experience that seemingly when it, you know i go back and read about what it was like when this film came out and how it was received i kind of had the same reaction that most of the fan base did um i don't know if you guys are twin peaks fans and know its mm-hmm. reputation but uh it was not well liked by critics or the fans of twin peaks or by anybody really and mm. <laughs> this was coming um, from David Lynch, like, essentially kind of leaving the show a little bit, you know, kind of uh, setting it aside to go work on other projects and winning the Palme d'Or for Wild at Heart. And so mm. I think it um, is an interesting movie in David Lynch's career. And it's really fascinating as a way to cap off what was this, like, cultural phenomenon of a TV series that, like, yeah. millions of people watched and became, like, a household thing done mm-hmm. by eccentric weird uncle david you know david lynch um to then watch have to see this movie to get closure and it's like the most david lynch movie he's he's ever made Uh, (laughs) it's up there behind maybe like a racer headed in the empire but it it is it is totally a bizarre strange film and um i think very much a horror film this was when i was a little bit worried might get called out as non-horror but uh, I think it's intense enough what, what it is talking about and depicting and the way that David Lynch does it in his typically upsetting style. Um, and it is it is quite a terrifying movie at times. Like I think Ray Wise gives a, a really um, like monstrous performance as Leland Palmer in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene it's where he has chill. to tell Laura to, to wash her hands before dinner is like one of the most like upsetting family dinner scenes I've seen in a movie. Like you know. uh, when they're in the car and someone's like honking and he's just like gripping the steering yes. wheel and screaming. Yeah. It's a, to yeah. me, it, it is horror. I, I agree with you there. And I think it's so, it's such a weird juxtaposition to the TV show. That's more quirky and odd. And it's such an, interesting way for an artist to reclaim their own work 
that had kind mm-hmm. of been taken away from them by corporate, um, you know, group decisions, like by committee. And, you know, it ruined really the mystery, the thing that he wanted to keep making the show for. And so he said, well, if, if the mystery's already gone, how can I make it still compelling? And it, it really is just so dark. Yeah. And um, all of it is, is bizarre. David Bowie scene might be one of the <laughs> most, like, strikingly lynchian things that as ever happened like where mclaughlin keeps going back between like the video uh cctv footage it's great i love right and then to have him scream and ask about judy only for then later in the movie to have a blue monkey save a judy Judy for yeah for some inexplicable reason at the climax of your film yeah it is a weird thing and i I, it is that darkness really is what put me off when i first watched it because uh the show gets to such a you know different place and it became very tame and kind of like you know uh a little like washed out from what it was when it began and it's so it, it is very interesting that lynch got this chance to to maybe answer some questions from the cliffhanger finale or mm. to like put a cap on what was going on in the show. But he instead to focus on the fact that it started from a place of like real pain for this character. And it is just like so good at putting you in the shoes of, of Laura Palmer and uh, Cheryl Lee's performance. Uh, I mean, she's absolutely incredible and like uh, gives the, one of the most heart wrenching and like empathetic performances like I've ever seen in a movie. I will say this is like an absolute, you know, 10 out of 10 <laughs> masterpiece. And it is like a sort of interesting artifact in the early 90s, this thing that was like reviled when it came out. And then now mm-hmm. looking back, like it's the best part of Twin Peaks. Like even I, I loved season three and thought season three was spectacular. But like that is this is still my ideal, you know, Twin Peaks uh, piece of content. And like uh, I think it does start. It's It has that quirkiness in there. It's just not as well you know put on display but that first half of the movie the first quarter following oh, chris uh, isaac uh, chris yeah. isaac yes is it's just one of the funniest things we have a wonderful harry and dean stanton appearance in that and it's it's that was equal parts creepy and funny and such a weird spin on like the twin peaks formula having him go to like an evil twin peaks essentially complete with like an <laughs> what seems like an evil log lady who lives in a trailer like it is just such a bizarre movie and i'm glad it came as a way to conclude this like you know series that you know people were like watching and primetime tv like it's just mm-hmm. fantastic that this is the way he decided to you know to put out afterwards this is all fantastic uh it's been so long since i've watched twin peaks so i don't have anything to add but i will say unrelated the gamesman in me realized a way that Murph or Greg could steal choices <laughs> from each other. So Murph was upset that he, that Greg got Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. There is a way you could steal it from him. You could challenge as the other commissioner. It's a long shot. Oh, wow. yeah. Now he he you, then you'd have to win the first. Yeah. You'd have to win the first. Uh, uh, what should call it? The the, the rock, rock paper, paper scissors. scissors. And then when your kind comes up again, you'd have to stop and him from doing it a again. second time in a row. Yeah. yeah, win it again. Yeah. So okay. I'm sorry. That it has nothing to do with the movie, but it just it, I realize there is a loophole in the way that I... we have arranged this commissioner status. <laughs> I'm taking this all the way to the Supreme Court right now. 
Yeah, we can trust their decisions on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boy. Uh, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> throw us off, but uh, that's a wonderful selection. Uh, it's a great, great film. Uh, I really, it's all this talk of Twin Peaks makes me just think I just need to revisit the series because it's been so long since I've watched it and and this Pretty movie. Great. So. Yeah, and that's yeah, the cool thing yeah. about this movie too is that its place and like the timeline of everything that it is a kind of sequel to the show and that it's also a, a prequel. And then mm-hmm. uh, I can't say too much, but it ties so much into season three as well. You can really watch it yeah. anywhere too, like in your watch of Twin Peaks, like before the series, after, before season three, after season three. It all fits in so beautifully, um, nice. and like that franchise is like a, just a really nice. Tight, you know, nice tied up package now. <laughs> like it all works together really, really well. So yeah, it's great for awesome. me. I'm also doing a, re- a rewatch. I forgot to mention that earlier, but uh, oh, nice, yeah. perfect. Uh, well, Greg, I'm gonna give the ball right back to you because you got the first pick of the second round here. Great. Um, this is one I wasn't sure at all if um, I have to. This is this is total follow my heart. I have mm-hmm. no idea if this was at risk, uh, and I need to pick this this early. But sure. I, I want to pick Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, oh, just because of how I much it. I absolutely adore this movie. Um, this is a movie that I, uh, I, I've, I've always been a huge fan of, of Dracula. I, I saw, you know, I saw some Dracula stuff here and there as a kid, but mostly I was a, a big fan of the Castlevania video game series and I love the character of Dracula and then that has now carried over into loving vampire movies and having read the book a lot and this was a movie where where when i first watched it even though it uh it is the most i just kind of thought of it as like oh it's the most accurate to the book but it's like too crazy and too out there and too weird and too laughable to be a good dracula movie but in the past couple years watching it again and again i realized just this is like um uh, a spectacularly directed massive blockbuster like 90s horror film that is paying tribute to like the entirety of movie making and horror movies and has such a love for old movies and the way it's shot and directed and and put together it is such a great like example of uh using current technology and current like big stars actors and like craft to make an old school throwback horror movie um Mm -hmm. which is something i love about what uh, there's a couple of 90s movies that do that that really reach back and like you do these wonderful sort of like um updates of older stories with the you know groundbreaking technology and budgets and it this mm-hmm. is the best example of it where it, it's grand and it's epic and it's got this uh love story that i used to hate because it's not in the book there's no romance really between dracula and mina it's all just implied like lust from uh, from dracula but in mm. this one when you make it equal i think i don't know maybe as i get older i get softer or something but it is a genuinely romantic and like really sad love story um and uh it gets that's something i really love about 90s films and that i it's a it's a decade i gravitate towards a lot just even outside of horror because i find it very comforting i just have mm-hmm. really really heavy nostalgia for the 90s being so young <laughs> during it and like this is a movie where it's got the it's so 90s because to me it really em, em, like embodies the maximalism that the 90s have sometimes everything is huge you have mm-hmm. massive excess sets, of the 90s the excess the insanity <laughs> of the costumes that it was not to be like you know, there's some dresses and like outfits 
and like just stuff in that that would not be rivaled until Padme's wardrobe in in Phantom oh, Menace. Yeah, the his 90s. Whole, like there's some like, insane choices in there. Red armor is is yes. pretty. Oh yeah, fantastic. red bodysuit armor yeah. is is such a striking image, and mm-hmm. uh, it's such a really fun, interesting take on the character of Dracula. And uh, this this romance aspect that I I didn't get when I first saw it, but now I just find that um, as a big fan of like vampire movies, some things they do really well. I'm like I love vampire romance movies. It's just a weird subgenre that really gets to me. So things like The Hunger or mm-hmm. um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, I just think it's a it's yeah. a genre that like lends itself well to like mixing with romance. And the story in this one where you have Dracula, and it, you know, you typically see two different takes on him. Either he's monstrous, like he's a Nosferatu, or he's like a Christopher Lee, who is certainly like alluring but clearly very dangerous. Or he's somebody more like dignified. Frank Langella, go see Frank Langella. Yeah, exactly. He's also pretty like animalistic. Um, there's so many takes on Dracula, and this kind of like, captures every good take of Dracula. It's like you have a younger, more suave Gary Oldman. You have the old, like you know emperor palpatine figure he is in the beginning you see him as different giant bat creatures as wolves like it's it's again it's excess it's maximalism you literally like it's the entire book which is a you know, pretty long book and you have every character included and it's just like you know and they were just throwing money at francis ford coppola to make this movie <laughs> and he knocked it out of the park like it's it is uh it's just a real feat of like uh, you have all the resources of the current times, the studios backing this, and it is like it comes out fantastic. It's big and spectacular, and it's like come and it's mainstream, which is an interesting thing for horror to be given this mm-hmm. level of like clout. You know, you have the director of The Godfather like making a horror <laughs> film, and it like lives up as a horror film. It's genuinely pretty. It's got wonderful atmosphere it's chilling you have a scene where vampire women eat a baby <laughs> like it's not holding back from the mm-hmm. horror. So, yeah, this is a movie I could talk about for hours, clearly, but uh, it's something, like, if I if I talk about it enough, I just get down to, like, I just love movies, and this is such a movie thing. <laughs> it's got, it's, you know, uh, it's epic score, and, like, uh, you know, <laughs> it's even got, like, classic Hollywood miscast in Keanu Reeves as Keanu Jonathan Reeves. Parker. But then you have, <laughs> you know, Gary Oldman knocking it out of the park. Like, the yeah. way he licks blood off the straight razor is just like uh yeah compelling (laughs) it shouldn't be it is but it is i mean the movie is just the definition of extra like it can't just do anything normally everything is weird about it people often i don't think people talk about anthony hopkins of course everyone loves him from like sounds of the lambs but his performance in dracula is just as good to me it is so unhinged he plays van helsing and they make him a sort of like really lascivious, like kind of like you know, a little too uh, <laughs> like flirty with, with all the women. And he's like a, a weird sorcerer. He sort of teleports at one point, demonstrating that magic is real. It's like a bizarre movie, and um, yeah, I find it just really captures like that, you know, the, the '90s excess. Nice, great pick. Uh, I can't add anything to that because yeah. you had uh, such fantastic points. I have nothing to <laughs> add to that. <laughs> um, anyone else want to jump in before we go to Murph? Or all right, 
Well, then, Murph, you are up with the second pick of the second round. This one is totally a uh, brain pick. I, I'm going with September 22nd, 1995, 7. Oh, The nice. serial killer thriller directed by David Fincher. It has yep. just some of the most amazing characterization i think of of a 90s movie um you get you get everything from morgan freeman even though it is like an awful trope of oh i'm retiring in seven days you don't care you're in there with morgan freeman uh i i really feel for brad pitt and gwyneth paltrow as a couple i i think that's real realistic like an early Mm -hmm. marriage uh young career guy all of the atmosphere how it's raining like the entire time is it it just it's really great the uh the turn of he who should not be named being the bad guy like kind (laughs) of coming out of nowhere is still really good and and it works even you know despite the the gravitas he had and the added one that he has now it was a very chilling performance, uh, and you only needed, like, what, 20 minutes of screen time, if that? And uh, it, it, it's just one of the most striking, nihilistic endings to a movie. Yeah, yeah. this is one I feel, too, Absolutely. gets lumped in to, like, that not a horror, but a thriller crowd a lot, too, because it is very, like, it's a police procedural story, essentially, but and, all like it's not supernatural the... so people sometimes True. will throw it under the bus yeah but all of the mm-hmm. murders are so horrific like feeding a guy to death uh having a guy put on a knife dildo and fuck a woman yeah insane <laughs> yeah <sighs> yeah well this is this r- truly shows that like like thrillers of the '90s were just the elevated horror of now. Really, Absolutely. I mean, it's just yeah. another way to rebrand it as like, no, this is like higher class fare. But you watch Seven; this is dark, depraved material. That I mean, very even side of it's like violence. It's just like it's it's super depressing and it's not have a good yes. view of humanity and just absolutely like leave you feeling hopeful at all. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a real downer. One hundred percent. But it is like it has such a uh, fantastic like uh, I mean David Fincher really just this just like shoot the hell out of it too. It looks absolutely amazing. Just a massive. And, mm-hmm. uh, I I rewatched it for, uh, to kind of prepare for this because it's on my short list as well. And like um, I was just struck by it. it does not feel like it came out in '95. This feels like it, it could have been released three years ago yeah. with how yeah. sleek it looks. And it is kind of honestly it was a little like surreal to see how old the computers were they were typing on because it's like. If, they, if he was typing on a MacBook, I would have believed it. <laughs> the way how how <laughs> fantastic this all looks. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, it is funny how like some films from this era feel very timeless. I mean, Scream feels kind of timeless, even though you look when you see the cell phones are these old yeah. like outdated <laughs> cell phones, and same thing with those computers. But yet. There's something outside. I mean, technology is always going to date phones, but there's just something she, outside of that that makes them timeless. She calls nine one one on her computer. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's a great pick. I mean, seven is fantastic. I, uh, I knew I had to take it. It, it was going to be gone way too soon. So. Yeah. 
No, I think it was probably smart to get that uh, when you did. Uh, great choice. Uh, Nick, your second round selection, sir. Uh, yeah, I'll go with another. Actually, I thought this would have been picked already, so I'm glad. I'm going to go with Misery. Um, oh, which, all right. That's another one that's like, I mean, I think Misery probably gets classified as horror more maybe than, than Seven, but it is just, a, it's another thriller. It's like a very effective, like almost one location thriller um mm -hmm. i think it it's probably classified as horror a lot more just because of the name stephen king you know um and i know that the premise is personal to him and is very horrific to him um like but um yeah i mean it's 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 i don't know what hasn't been said about misery it's just like such a tight thriller um not just in yeah. the sense that it's like tightly confined into one space but just like it moves fast enough and like there's no there's no fat it's just it's just i don't know it's it's performances are great um i don't even know what to say uh, it's great there's yeah, like some I, great comedy with it, them oh yeah we we covered it on our podcast and it is it is just phenomenal um it is it's striking there's only one real death in the movie but great. it is still mm -hmm. I, I like a a great horror gripping story. Yeah. yeah, and it was even like yeah, it was definitely it was tampered down from what, how violent the book was, and yet it still manages yeah. to be like absolutely terrifying and just as scary. Uh, I, I watched it immediately after reading the book, just within the past year, and I found it to be like it's such a, a, a wonderful adaptation with its own stamp on it because there are a few things that are different but for the most part it's so well crafted and put together that it doesn't seem to really matter like those differences it's just you know it really does get at this personal idea like you mentioned for Stephen King who has described it as being about like addiction right and uh you still feel that in in the movie and I'm a massive James Conn fan and I think that he is in top form yeah in that movie mm -hmm. yep. just uh the the thing i could not get over when i watched it was just how he really does feel like he's playing he plays a, a good celebrity when he has to turn on the charm to get her to like do certain things and convince her of stuff the way he plays it is so it feels so much like he is just dealing like he it's genuine to the like him ex ex talking with an you know uh like a super fan and it feels like a real celebrity like you know gently like uh like placating a fan you know without uh being too like he, yeah it's just it's so well done i'm a big james con fan and i think it's one of his best performances i think this is which is oh sorry go oh, no 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 you, you go first oh no i was just going off with james Conn, which is just it's interesting and and that it is like such a fantastic performance because he was at such a low point and was like one of the last choices the studio wanted i mean they were going for like anybody else but james Kahn. i mean warren Beatty was attached for a yeah. while and he actually did a lot to like adjust some of the character motivation so that he's not just laying in bed the whole time like like finding ways for him to like get out and like try to escape and things like that um before they went to james Kahn, and and i think it was a challenge for Kahn too because he's such like a he's very physical and like very um uh fidgety i think you referred to himself he's like you you took hollywood's most add actor and like put him in a bed like maybe <laughs> stay in a bed and stay still basically so it was almost like psychological torture to him like rob reiner would come on set and be like jimmy today you're gonna be in the bed like every day is like a joke to him uh and it is so uh, bizarre to, like, it's rob reiner like yeah you don't necessarily think of him as, as a master of horror but it it is yeah, so but chilling. i think he's 
he's doing a similar thing like i talked about with coppola where it's like he's using what he has there in the mo- his modern day resources to like make a movie from his childhood that he loves like, or yeah. in the style of a movie he loves from his childhood or this is very mm-hmm. hitchcocky and i think reiner said like he intentionally like studied a lot of hitchcock and was trying to shoot tension the way he does and it totally pays yep. off and it fits right in it doesn't feel like a dated style at all or anything it feels very fresh uh and like it, it's also just like a spectacular looking movie yeah uh those like snowscapes and just the way that the house is shot like it is somehow very comforting to watch this movie too as much as it mm-hmm. is like terrifying and we haven't even mentioned we haven't even said kathy bates's name yet but oh, yeah. no, I was gonna... you don't have to talk about it but she because it's so universal she's she's just that good I think one of the things that you're well, you're seeing it today. I think more with like the art house horror. I think you you see big names attached to um, to horror a little bit more frequently now than perhaps you have in in horror history. But um, this is a great example of like Silence of the Lambs being another one around the same time, where um, you have you know just top notch actors and in this case, I think Misery and Silence of the Lambs are great examples because I think Anthony Hopkins and Kathy Bates are both playing very theatrical like villains almost to like like cartoony almost but because of who they are and 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 it just it just works so well um you know that 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 type of a performance could easily have fallen apart in like anyone else's hands um but it works perfectly in misery and like you said rob reiner um i think he proves like i know stand by me is not a horror movie but i think he he has probably adapted stephen king as well as anybody you know barring frank darabont yeah. maybe like he's i would love to see him do more i think and you mentioned the book i, lo- I love the book misery is great too but I th- it's one of those things where like i think less is more with stephen king if you can like take out some of his excesses because oh, he tends to yes. you, like <laughs> those are the best film adaptations i mean uh for sure and so yeah just restrain it a little bit and like yeah i think it's um I don't know. I just I will always love that movie. That's one of those movies that I can I can. Some of these movies on these lists, um, I'll, I'll choose ones that I really like that I don't watch that frequently. But Misery is a movie that I can really pop on any time and watch it all the way through and just I'll always like it as much as I did the first time. That's a great pick. Uh, all right, so I'm up uh, finally again after a very <laughs> long wait. I'm back up. Uh, so this is interesting how this draft is shaking out and and you know my mantra on this show is draft with your heart and and and, and but with these mega drafts with, with like and I did it with the 80s um I feel like you kind of have to do a little bit of head and heart like I I know that there are probably certain movies that are near and dear to my heart that I can probably get pretty late in this draft but absolutely there's yeah, but there's one that is near and dear to my heart that I don't want to let slip away just in case. So this pick is going to be a heart pick. Uh, and that was the aforementioned Tremors from January 1990. Uh, I have no idea where it falls on anyone else's list, but I've mentioned it when I've drafted it previously in the past. I think this is a near-perfect it, movie. No, it I is think it is so perfect. Fantastic. I think oh, excellent. everything like pays off <laughs> all of the characterization uh Mm -hmm. it's just it's so stunning and fred ward Mm -hmm. is is so delightful in it really yes yeah like everyone talks about bacon Bacon. but i i I love fred ward yeah yeah (laughs) 
and I think it's telling that his, that charm carries over to the second film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when when he is the star of that, where Kevin Bacon has not returned and he's the main star, but that charm is still there even without Kevin Bacon to play off of. I don't mean to be talking about the sequel to the film I just drafted, but I'm just saying like it just goes to to prove the point you're making um, that you know he he is a fantastic actor and is great in this role. Yeah, I only just watched this recently since you invited us on, because I was like, this is probably going to come up, and I should have seen this by now. But it is also like, I've seen huge chunks of the second movie and the third ones. I I have an aunt Mm. who's very, very into, like, monster movies, specifically, like, cheesy, uh, like, asylum, you know, super anaconda versus giant octopus type of movies. She loves these, and I think this is kind of the progenitor of that genre, or one of the progenitors, um... And so she, this is a favorite movie of hers, and so I've seen a lot of the sequels and things like that. But yeah, finally nice. watching the original, you realize like it is like so well done. I, I keep talking about the technology of the '90s and what they did, but it is like it feels like it could be maybe shot on the Universal backlot with all the like you know the the all the the tools they're using to make it and these these massive cool awesome physical props like the graboids that come through the wall the rec room and everything like it looks Mm -hmm. spectacular and very much of it's like what it shows you what the what the uh you know the new standard is for the 90s for like monster effects i think i yeah yeah, absolutely i I also think again it's it's so well written i think it has such great characterization and arcs and i i love kevin bacon's when he's driving out to see the uh, what is she geologist or whatever her study is? I think so, or like a grad student or something. Right, right. And he is, like yeah. pulls down the sun visor and he's like, "You will have long legs, long blonde <laughs> hair, blue eyes." And then he gets there and she's nothing like it. But then at the end of the movie, like they're the ones that fall in love. It, it's so yeah. Uh, it's a great you know, subverting the expectations of what this character is, and he grows a little bit Mm -hmm. but it's still growth yes absolutely and i think there's like for as much of a horror comedy as it is because there's a lot of comedy in it i think there are some truly like scary elements to it like when uh, matt bronzdorf was on for horror comedies he was talking about watching the film with his wife and the scene where the the couple who are running their generator out at at night there and as they're building their house um and getting like sucked down beneath the dirt in the car and, and how she had to stop the movie there because it was like a little too much and a little too scary for her in that moment. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some genuine scares in it for as much of a fun like creature film and a horror comedy. I think it, it delivers kind of on, on both um, on both sides of that, that coin. Another yeah, great that... characterization. Sorry, Greg, but they, they're always uh, arguing and then playing rock, paper, scissor to see who's going to yes. do the thing. <laughs> And it's a great part. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that scene with the couple getting sucked down, the ones playing music, like you, they do a wonderful job of making you care about them just enough so that when mm-hmm. they're killed, you actually feel the emotions of it. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I mean, I only watched it recently. I watched it close to watching Top Gun Maverick, but I thought about Maverick a lot while I was watching it because it is that simple. It's the same sort of like movie yeah. simplicity you understand what they need to do at any given moment it's like shot and edited together very very well to maximize the tension and Mm -hmm. like you know show off the effects it doesn't linger too long on effects to have them you know start looking iffy like it's all it's all so well done and uh yeah it's absolutely a new favorite (laughs) you know i just just saw it 
<laughs> well, nice. I'm glad I got it now then, because and to, to hear you both speak so highly of it, I, I have no idea where Nick would have had it, but now that I know you both were fans, I'm glad I took it now and didn't miss out on it. Uh, so let's see. Uh, I had just had two perfect films in a row in Scream and Tremors. Uh, where am I going to go with round three here? <laughs> now, now I think I got to go a little bit... Uh, uh, well... Sorry, I'm just looking at the the list of films here. Um, you know what? I I'm gonna go with another. I'm gonna go with another heart pick here. Uh, I'm gonna take another. This is like a repeat of the horror comedy draft, Nick, because I'm also gonna take Idle Hands here to start off oh. the third round. <laughs> uh, which I believe you also covered on your yes, podcast, is right? Yep. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. That was that. So it's a little bit of a head pick where it's like I know they also covered it and i believe you all really enjoyed it so why did we cover it again greg i'm forgetting the the subgenre uh, that was april we, we were yes, all marijuana right. based marijuana that's right. yes yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. And, uh, this ended up being like uh the perfect pick for that month because it is such a, a classic stoner type of movie um yes. with this amazing horror bent uh and like a really interesting cast i did not love it as much as my co-host did um, okay but i right. found a lot to appreciate about it uh and i'm certainly glad i watched it uh yeah something we talked about and i think it's undervalued about it is like it's a great october movie yeah it's set right before yes. halloween yeah and every mm-hmm. house is decorated for halloween and you have just like this really fun hangout vibe it's a perfect type of like halloween party movie yeah i always oh, absolutely yeah i do love when a movie uses halloween so we can have these characters either like dying or dressed really weird and we just pass it off as a costume like mm-hmm. it's it's so kind of wonderful when they do that <laughs> and a lot of the effects are just you know outstanding of um the two friends being murdered the hand puppet and uh when it uh puts all of its fingers into the pencil sharpener and just does that 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 shot where they're all all sharpened it's great i love it so much yeah yeah and look i mean are there some elements of it that haven't aged well like I, jessica alba's entire character i don't know what you're yes. talking about I, <laughs> But I was, I will say, like, because I rewatched it again recently, too, and, and it was one I loved growing up, uh, like, as a teen, and, and speaking of that, like, hangout vibe, like, to me, I, I mentioned that, like, if watching that movie feels like, to me, like, I'm a teenager, and it's Friday night, and I have, like, no responsibilities for, like, the whole rest of the weekend, and I'm just, like, ready to, like, hang and have fun. You're gonna get That's, stoned, like, what that film feels like. Put on like. the Dracula music video. <laughs> Do some knitting, you know. Mm-hmm. Do some knitting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it just, it's that movie always kind of like brought me back. And so I rewatched it like all the time as a teen. And so I had revisited it recently and was very worried that a lot more wasn't going to age well. But but it actually held up a lot better than I expected. But I, I cannot defend the way that Jessica Alba's character is. She's half written. a character. I, yes, it's, I agree. Yeah, it's I truly agree. stunning. <laughs> truly stunning that like it's it's as shallow as it is and yes like, what, they, what they do with the character in the, in the ending which was like a clear reshoot and, uh, mm-hmm. and it's like uh one of the parts of the movie that kind of lost me a bit but like what they do with the character yeah. in that point is just unbelievable for this day and age yeah i i want to believe again i don't know anything about the making but i want to believe she's 
so shallow to the point that they're making a commentary about female actresses in horror yeah. movies. That's what I'm going to choose to believe until I've been told otherwise, I guess. It's a parody, um, yeah. It's a parody of... of yeah, it's a parody. <laughs> of underwritten characters. Yeah. Of course, of course. Um, anyway, so that is my uh, third round pick. Um, so, Nick, you are back on the board then, sir, with your third round selection. Okay. Oh, it's a lot of good picks so far. I'm actually... Crossing a lot of... All right. You know what? I have two picks from the same filmmaker. I don't want to, like, give away maybe what might be another pick, but I'm just going to say it's a tough mm. choice. I might just, like, flip a coin. Um, oh, it's such a tough one. I'm going to go with... I'll go with Dead Alive. Brain Dead, Dead Alive. Um, no. uh, yeah, I don't know. Um I don't know what hasn't already been said about that movie. I also don't know what you can say about that movie. I mean, it is, it is what it is. It's exactly what it... It's just... In... I mean, you say the title and I get a little nauseous. Yeah, it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's just... I don't, I don't know. Um, I saw that movie for the first time. I think part of what's so great about it for me is... I mean, obviously it's a blast. And the gore is fantastic. And if you're into that kind of thing, like it doesn't get any better um then like you know the the last 25 30 minutes or whatever um is just as great of a gore film as you will ever see just those 30 minutes alone um worth the price of admission but i think what's funny for me and what i think i love so much about it is that i think it may have been my first peter jackson movie and i remember wow. i forget when it was it was in high school it was before lord of the rings had come out um i probably he was attached to and or filming at that time and i didn't even know lord of the rings um was in production but uh i forget where i read about it but i read about this movie dead alive and they're like it's so extreme it's over the top and i was really into horror at the time and i was like oh we'll see how extreme this movie is and i found the unrated tape at the uh at our movie gallery rented it and it's just it was so beyond what i was expecting like in terms <laughs> of its success um but it was funny you know, I didn't know whether I was like I didn't read enough about it to know whether it was a scary movie or if it was like, you know, and it was so it's so funny and it's such a great example of um not just early Peter Jackson, but I think he still uses the style a lot. It's just like the very unflattering wide angle push-ins to characters and stuff. Like that's a very it's all over that movie. And um to then find out that Peter Jackson went on to make, you know, like to become the Peter Jackson that he is now. Um it's great to always revisit his early, his early films. I mean, I saw Dead Alive, and then I saw Bad Taste, and I was, you know, um, men made my way back towards his, like, mid-90s movies, and um, what an evolution. I mean... Um, <laughs> even even knowing its reputation, I mean, see, I saw it with much more context than you had, and even then it still managed to, like, just... I had no... There's no way I could have anticipated 90% of that movie. Yeah, yes. And... And what levels it goes to, and like Murph said, I, I I also got that touch of nausea just thinking about it. It still has one of the most something about the way it's delivered and shot and everything. The, the line "Your mother ate my dog" is so upsetting to me. It is such a moment that if I think about it too long, and the movie just glosses over that aspect, like they just move on from there as if it didn't happen at a certain point. And even that fact is like upsetting to me. That it's like I, I mean, I saw this thing when I was like a, a young teenager, and it's like 
uh it was a, so it was an early horror for me as i'm getting into the genre and <laughs> that it will just never leave me like as like something that, that you know a haunting line from a movie and it's also very weirdly funny that's the other it's bad so part funny. about it is that it's a joke it's just a hilarious yeah, joke I, and I, it also is really gross and upsetting yep i think i think part of it is peter jackson is such a sincere filmmaker that even when he's doing something as like gross out as this movie is like that sincerity comes across i could totally yeah yep you know who i i i have always looked at well with dead alive particularly but like him and sam raimi in a lot of ways um just like their career paths in terms of like where they started and and like their clout now and what kinds of films are but also um and i think especially in bad taste and dead alive um i'm thinking like the, the opening maybe 15 minutes of bad taste and like the scene in dead alive with the baby in the park is so slapstick and like three stooges esque. And then that's like exactly what Sam Raimi brought to like that level of that energy and stuff that he brings to that kind of gore film. Um, like it's hysterical and it's really well done. And it's such like a physical piece of comedy. Um, he does that as well as like, I can't think of another filmmaker besides Sam Raimi in horror who can bring like that level of like physicality to, um, to you know well to a horror so, film really so obviously peter jackson should be the director for avengers 5 yeah yeah <laughs> please yeah, yeah yeah let him take a like, the next crack at a marvel film yeah yeah sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely do, do you want to hear a fun little factoid i found doing research for the child's play franchise for with girly and rust always oh, absolutely Okay, so apparently, and I don't know how this fits in with his filmography, because this is right or roughly around the time of um, Dead Alive, but he was, so Peter Jackson was supposedly attached to direct Child's Play 3 originally. Oh, wow. And then, and I don't know, so, because it's a, Dead Alive's a 92 film, but is that because it was 92 because it was released in the U.S. at that time, but did it come out in New Zealand before that, and it was like already like, you know prepped and ready so i don't know if he was coming off of that or if he had just come off of like bad taste and meet the feebles and that's why they were looking at him to take on part three but for whatever reason he you know didn't join on and uh you know direct child's play three but um that's like the little, little tidbit i've heard so far about uh that third film and i makes me wonder really what that film would have been if uh, <laughs> if peter jackson was behind the helm that would be that would be an interesting alternate universe to be in. I, I imagine it, yeah. it would be like Alien cubed with Fincher you know, <laughs> taking the helm of it. Like you would have a few Possibly. people. A few people would be like, it's a masterpiece. And everyone would be like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because the original plot for the third one had to be really cut down. That's why it's set at the military academy. Um and in the third one, Don Mancini... Okay, I don't mean to like just <laughs> spoil a bunch of stuff for the Child's Play franchise, but um, Don's original idea for Child's Play 3 was that that would be the one that um, Charles Lee Ray was able to go into multiple dolls in. 
Now that gets carried over, of course, into Cult of Chucky, yeah, but that was wow. the original idea for three, but budgetarily, and because it was like a nine-month turnaround after the second film, they just they couldn't do it, and they had to cut it down to a much simpler premise, basically. Um, so anyway, I would have loved to see Peter Jackson direct it with that original idea in mind, because I bet he would have had a lot of fun with that. He could still direct a, a Child's Play movie today. Yeah, it's not he too late. Still do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, not at all. <laughs> Anyway, I don't mean to take us on that tangent. I just thought it tied into Peter Jackson. and Because and, his transition to U.S. filmmaking was sort of interesting. I don't want to, again, I don't want to, like, spoil anything for upcoming in the draft, possibly. But, you know, the the film he breaks into the U.S. market, his first U.S. film, um, was, I, I don't know. Actually, I won't say anything. I'll tell, I'll tell <laughs> we'll you if it comes up, all right? There. Yeah, yeah, so I'll just hold off for the time being, but all right, so Nick, yeah. excellent pick in the third round. Murph, we're keeping you waiting there. It's your pick though, sir, for the third round here. What are you what are you going to draft? All right, this is this is another brain draft, but it is, it is near and dear to my heart. Uh we're mm-hmm. going to January 19th, 1996, directed by Robert Rodriguez, but Tarantino has his fingers all <laughs> over it oh, from wow. dusk till dawn. It's uh, it's such a wild ride, coupled with amazing, (laughs) amazing performances. I honestly don't know if I would say George Clooney has a better, like, performance. He is just so... He is (laughs) hitting that character (laughs) so fucking well. I mean, maybe, uh, what's Danny Ocean... But like yeah. he is so honed into that character. Uh, what what's the line? It's like um, be cool and you be cool. You have Tarantino as the like pervy crazy brother who then gets him yeah, into probably more his trouble. Best acting performance, like I, you know, Pulp Fiction. But yeah, it's well, close. That whole scene it's is really <laughs> close. I mean, yeah. problematic, but yes, close. Uh, I, you know. Cheech Marin is fantastic. You've got Tom oh, Savini. Yeah. Michael Parks has a small role. John Hawks as the convenience store clerk in like the very beginning. Uh, it just it's it's so phenomenal. Juliette Lewis, who I'm not really a big fan of, I still think she does a great job. Harvey Keitel. I know I'm missing like a couple actors. Uh, what's his name? The Danny Trejo is in it as well Mm -hmm. has has to be being a (laughs) yeah uh, rodriguez Uh, movie yeah uh and it has such fantastic effects like all Uh, of the hayek too yeah uh, her her transition is so great of like the the dance where she puts her foot in tarantino's mouth and like pours the the tequila (laughs) down and you're like after you find out some things about tarantino you're like Oh yeah, he made that happen. Um, yeah, well, he, yeah, he wrote it. He was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's and it has, uh, I think, one of the best like cappers into a movie where they're leaving, but then you finally see the back half of the the titty yeah. bar that they're I mean, in, awesome. and it's the giant Mayan pyramid with all of like bodies and cars just thrown off the edge of it 
that is it's, yeah. a great payoff. Uh, we haven't mentioned, like, we've been pretty good about not giving it away for people who have not <laughs> seen From Dust Till Dawn. It's an interesting experience to watch it if you know nothing about it. Yeah. So, like, there's aspects of it that I don't quite want to want to mention, but it, it does have, like, it's it's such a unique idea to do what they do in that movie. And, like, it doesn't lose a step. Like, it, it's, it's great on both sides of that. Uh, it's a really effective movie at first that then makes a major decision and remains to be really fun and then like you know uh consistent even with yeah. this this big shift it has one of the most like absurd moments i think in movie history that is that still plays wonderful like when tom savini <laughs> has a fucking cock gun yeah that's I knew that. How does it work? I want to know the fucking <laughs> details of it, and I never will. And I am, I'm crushed. This movie was on my list, and I'm, and I'm, honestly, I'm glad you picked it because I don't know what I would have, <laughs> I don't know where I would have placed it. And to be honest, like every time I watch this movie, I, I think I find myself liking the second half less. Um, like. I know it's on a horror list, and I would have picked it too on this because of the movie that it wound up being. But the more I watch it, the more I'm like, I really wish I had seen the whole first half of the yeah. movie. Like, I that could have mm. been a great movie too. Um, and I wound up later on. I forget when it was because um, I think they made several seasons. But I saw the first season of the show, which I watched I a loved. big chunk of that too. Right, show was pretty cool. I thought it was yeah. so good. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, like the first season really expands on. In some ways, I think it's like you have. The movie where like you it's not even a full horror movie it's half of a horror movie and then you have the series which takes that half of a movie and stretches it over an entire season and it's surprisingly great uh, so if you haven't seen the show i, I mean I, I didn't watch the second right. couple seasons you're selling me right it, now. It, it was fun i mean <laughs> it's if you've seen the movie then you've like seen the first season i'm sorry to spoil it but like that's i knew that going into it and i still found myself loving it um that being said like what a great like there are very few movies that make such a ballsy decision um and i love robert rodriguez and i love tarantino and i think they pull it off yeah uh i love the band like they're just playing and then when it cuts back and they transform like all of their instruments are bodies (laughs) cobbled together yeah like like a torso for the guitar body it's great it's so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. It is such a fun movie. And well, actually, I don't remember most of um, Full Tilt Boogie, the making of documentary, the feature that like. But the opening of Full Tilt Boogie is hysterical. I don't know. That's like the movie. I think it comes with every copy of From Dust Till Dawn. It wound up being like a yeah, feature. Yeah, I definitely own it, but I've never, <laughs> never actually put it on. I don't. But wanna... I one hundred percent own it in a in a pack with the first one. I, I wound up watching the whole thing. I think actually I rented Full Tilt Boogie like on its own, which I don't even know if that was like if it was one of those like this is not to be sold <laughs> separately type things. But um, I wound up watching the whole thing, and it, you know it's fine. It's a good making of, I guess. It's just not a movie I necessarily needed to see the making of of. But the opening of Full Tilt Boogie, you should just YouTube it because like the first five minutes, brilliant. And I don't even I don't want to say anything more about it, but <laughs> hysterical. Yeah, I do think it does have some good. Um, it, it becomes it's it's different. But it, that first half though does to me have a lot of great horror flares to it that make it like upsetting in a different way. And it, it is just like it, but it's effective in its own right. I actually think Tarantino is pretty good at playing this character who yeah. legit feels dangerous. Yeah, 
and the way they shoot uh Clooney walking in on something he's done is like it it's st- it stuck with me and uh that to me is a is a very chilling moment before anything insane happens but that moment yeah so i think that first half is is like it's a really solid type of horror movie on its own yeah but i i and i agree that like i would maybe rather have an entire film of that uh but it does end up in such crazy creative places that like i still don't mind that change yeah yeah oh it's definitely a good uh, great pick i would have probably put it on my list if if you hadn't taken it so Great pick, Murph. Uh, Greg, you are up with the final pick of the third round, and then you'll have the back-to-back in the fourth. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. There's still a lot of really big ones I, I know could go at any second. Um, mm-hmm. But I keep being drawn to heart picks just in the case that, like, I, I know Murph and I would probably have a lot of similar heart picks, so I think these these are, in a way, up for grabs. But um, I, I'm going to go heart pick my first one and say Barton Fink. This is one that Murph might oh. dispute. I don't know if you would. Uh, it's been one so long, I... but there are. I do remember the end just devolves into chaos, and that it does feel uh, like so much tension is is strung on a very tight wire. Yeah, absolutely. It gets to to some pretty like crazy heights. And uh, but but I think that this this is directed by the Coen Brothers, starring John Turturro, uh, John Goodman, Michael Lerner, and maybe his, his best ever role, which is like, you know, saying a lot. Um, John Mahoney, Tony Shalhoub, Judy Davis, and it's uh, I find the whole movie to be just personally distressing and really upsetting in the way that um, a lot of more graphic or like you know uh genre based like horror movies are not you know you know more like there's no there's not a lot of gore in this there's a little bit of blood but it's not a violent film for the most part it's more psychological and atmospheric and i just i find when i'm watching it 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 gives me this sense of just like existential worry about my life uh <laughs> that to me it has to be classified as a horror movie um like speaking as personally somebody who like had like a lot of like writing aspirations when I was younger still have a lot of writing aspirations like the story of I just you never see a better depiction of what it is like to grapple with this like I want to write but I can't actually seem to physically write anything but you know you have that desire in there somewhere it's something that you don't know how to do much else really but you cannot compel yourself there's something deep dark something wrong in the world around you preventing you from doing what you think you're meant to be and like it really has you questioning uh me has me questioning like my choices and uh i think that it's a very personal movie because it's it's the coen brothers writing this in the middle of a writing slump while working on miller's crossing and so it's really bizarre and that it was like an exercise they said for them to like get over this writing block they had and it turned into its own movie that i feel is one of their more personal and like you know um like interesting films that have a very interesting career counterpoint real quick adaptation yeah uh adaptation i uh, this is probably a, a bad thing but i have not seen it oh. <laughs> i need to see that though <laughs> it, i'm a big it, kaufman it, fan too and i i don't yeah i don't know why it, I made it, it that, uh yeah. it definitely gets into that like 
it's so meta about be- being in the middle of writer's block. It's, yeah. it's fantastic. It's not horror at all, but there are, it's a lot of that. Like I, yeah, I, I, I'm supposed to be something and I don't know if I'm even that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just secondary to a lot of stuff that, uh, the other things that Barton Fink is doing, like talking about being a writer in Hollywood and being an, a, a, trying to be a creative voice in Hollywood and the way that like there's a million movies about this about being an artist trying to make it in movies and having your art artistry ground down but the way it's handled in this one like the uh the way that like things the entire city is like decaying and falling apart and you know um like it's all just like seems to be it's very biblical the way that this movie is handled it's like a you know a level of purgatory that turns into you know a lot of hell inspired imagery um when john goodman is like unleashed near the end of the movie um but uh yeah it it is such a odd ethereal thing to me uh this movie and like it is uh yeah just i find to be a very effective horror movie for me personally uh as well as a great cohen movie it's got a lot of their common players john goodman and john polito and uh john turturro like uh you know it's steve buscemi in a great small role and it, it it does not feel out of step with the rest of their filmography uh in spite of its like much darker nihilistic tone um you know it, it's it's still as you know a pretty good cohen comedy too there's a lot to, to, to laugh at <laughs> amongst all the dreariness great pick and it sounds like the other commissioner is going to allow oh, it. Oh yeah, you know I'm not okay. going to argue because it's a pick that I can I can do something else later. He's not going to steal something from me. <laughs> he already yeah, he like already said, took my so. number three, so I'm I'll take the small <laughs> yeah. wins. If I if I didn't have the back to back, I don't know if I would have uh, done it this early. But I just think I have the back to back, so I have the safety that I can I know yeah. I can pick this and then something you know a little more like probably up for grabs later so yeah for that second one i'm gonna get right into it um my second one's yeah, gonna go be uh army of darkness nice oh nice yeah. pick yeah uh something that uh may as well have, i mean it probably is my introduction to the world of horror i saw this incredibly young uh i have an older brother who was a huge huge fan of the original evil dead films and was you know saw this in theaters multiple times and so we watched his vhs uh a lot um when i was a kid and he used to hit mute over the profanity that was the he knew the exact timing to like mute the profanity with the remote so that like me and my other younger siblings wouldn't hear that but you know uh so watch this a lot and so it's a very like you know nostalgic and personal movie to me um but it's also just like great example of like Sam Raimi in the '90s having some 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 higher clout from making other films, you know, and having some more experience coming back to this the franchise that he like launches from Gur with, like over a decade later, and like uh you know doing something really fun and and weird with that, uh completely, you know, now a comedy like not a half comedy or a horror comedy, just as a full on like three stooges movie with some skeletons and you know (laughs) like some violence thrown in there it's it's yeah it's it's a great like 
capper to a really fun trilogy too i always think mm-hmm. about the shot like he's fighting a bunch of of the skeletons and it's you can tell it's literally just someone throwing a skeleton <laughs> absolutely at Bruce throwing skeleton prop. <laughs> and he just you catches it and explosions throws it going away. off the skeletons that are flying to the air when the explosions go off are very like thickly padded stuntmen <laughs> and not skeletons <laughs> at all uh it's great it's i mean it's full of like iconic lines that like you know our household thinks today and like um Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and it's just like i don't know it has so much like uh about it is just silly it's just so silly okay let me ask you this silliest goddamn movie do do you have a preferred ending because there are two endings to the the i really like both um, for a long time, I thought the better ending was the alternate. And so for like, people who don't, mm. yeah, there's an alternate ending for that, that like, um, he ends up staying, he, he fucks up going home it's yet again and ends up in Winkle. a cave. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With a great fake beard when he comes out of the cave and, uh, an awesome final line of, I slept too long, like screamed at the heavens. That's a great <laughs> ending, but there is, when you, that the original ending, theatrical ending is a lot of fun. Just like the very silly image of the deadite flipping off a little trampoline yeah. and like flipping through the air, the final lines, the hail to the king thing. It's like it's iconic in its own way, too. I think they, mm-hmm. they're a good, they're, they're a two hander. I end up usually just like YouTubing the alternate ending after I watch the movie. So they're kind of both the ending to me because I've seen, I've seen, you know, that's usually how I watch it. I think the, um, the alternate the alternate one was, was the original, right? And they, they, I think yes. Universal yes. had him reshoot it. I saw. I bought the VHS at like a Suncoast video or something when I was I had just seen the first two Evil Deads and I was like I gotta see this right away. Went out, bought the VHS. The only one that they had in stock, and I would have gotten it anyway. It was like the one that was limited to like fifty thousand. It was like a very. It was like the not the collector's edition that Anchor Bay put out, but another one has a really cool cover, alternate artwork, um, and it only had the alternate ending on it. Oh wow! So I didn't even know the original <laughs> oh, ending existed at first, and when I found out, I had to go buy another copy of the movie. Um, <laughs> and like that one feels <laughs> That's how like it's dead for sure. They, I know. Like, yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. Right. And then DVDs come out, and you have like two endings, and you have a storyboarded third ending that they didn't shoot. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. But like. Um, yeah. But yeah, if I, I remember since that was the first ending I saw, I really appreciated. Sorry, I don't want to spoil. I I can't say this without spoiling the end of the series but the end of the series is such an homage to the end of army of darkness that alternate ending i thought that yeah. was that was kind of like beautiful actually when i when i finished ash versus evil dead and that ending and i was like this is this is the ending that like they couldn't get into theaters that they wanted to before and they've now <laughs> brought it back and that's awesome nice. yeah that is really cool um yeah it's just like i it's funny because like it ended up being my like it was my like I said it was my introduction to horror as a kid and then ended up like getting me deeper into horror later because when I finally decided to watch the first two Evil Dead movies because of my love of Army of Darkness I expected the same level of comedy and it like ended up <laughs> being just the most insane night of my young life like being scared <laughs> out of my boots by <laughs> evil expecting slapstick and skeletons doing you know the whole eyeball shield routine and instead you get like dismemberment and like terror uh so but that but that feeling that night of being that shocked by it finally dipping my toes into hard you know some 
more like uh out there horror that really did open my mind and like make me a, a huge horror fan for life so yeah i owe lots of army of darkness like just personally uh so yeah i'm, I'm glad I, I still was able to grab it yeah perfect nice. pick I yeah that's that's a surprise round so you got it yeah right in time. i was gonna say it's surprising it lasted till I the fourth yeah honestly yeah uh, all right, well, Murph, you're up with your fourth round selection here. All right, I so it's something that we had been talking about a little bit before, and I just want to make sure I get it, because I do think it is uh, one of the, I don't want to say better sequels of the 90s, but it is it was so much better than it needed to be that I am always impressed by it. I'm going to go November 9th, 1990, child's play 2 oh not the wow. sequel i expected right. when you started yeah <laughs> I, you know i i have another one on that i think might be a better sequel but i think this one it it really outdid itself it did not need to be as well put together as as it is i think there is just a wonderful score I think the camera work is actually really good. There's a lot of great lighting. It has one of the the best in set pieces. Yeah. In a horror mm-hmm. movie where yeah. it's we're going to the factory yeah. and it's just full of good guy dolls and uh Chucky getting like uh kind of stapled to a platform and then conveyor belt into a building machine it's it's a bit of a a misdirect like you're like oh he like was completely torn apart in it but then he's just like got his legs chopped off and is then telling danny i'm going to chop off your legs before getting hot molten plastic like just covered in it (laughs) it It, just keeps heightening yeah it it, it does it's um you know the all of the performances are fine whatever it's just one that it it could have been a straight to video sequel and everyone would have been like yeah sure it's it's a it's a talking doll but it really does convey a bunch of of terror especially to me um you know charles lee Wright when he's trying to go into the body and then he realizes like oh my doll body is is real now i'm stuck in here fuck it i'm just gonna kill the kid (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it still carries over that act that genuine tension of like having your your uh your lead be so young too like he is he's still very very out of very much at a vulnerable age there and so it carries over that creepiness from the first movie but it heightens and it makes it like fun and silly in its own way i always think about the the teacher kill with the ruler that's what i was about to say it it is it's so it's it's very funny and it's such a weird heightening for again in terms of like its tone it's comedic tone from the first film and it builds such tension before yeah but it's the manages to be well done yeah yeah exactly yeah those things. yeah this was the and first was one i saw the series uh sorry no no yeah, but uh no 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 i i was again i was uh it is very funny for me to be on the 90s draft episode being as young as I am. I was only spent six years in the 90s. But that means that, like, I a lot of my childhood fears were things like Chucky. Because when I was mm-hmm. this that young, he was all the rage. And this movie was still pretty fresh. So, like, I 
I was absolutely terrified of Chucky as a kid. This was the first one I saw, and it helped me again. He's dipped my foot into like into horror, and I become a fan. So, yeah, I owe a lot to this one movie as well. Yeah, and I was just gonna say it's it's interesting Child's Play too because it essentially recycled a lot of ideas from Mancini's original script that got scrapped when Tom Holland came on and rewrote it. And so that finale, for instance, that's in the Toy Factory was in the finale of the original script. Way more of like the corporate cynicism Mm -hmm. of like that marketing to children and stuff that kind of got taken out of his original script is in there. The line, um, you've seen dolls that pee, this one bleeds. That was in the original (laughs) script because the original script was originally called Batteries Not Included, and then they changed it to Blood Buddy when they realized Spielberg was making yeah. a movie by the same name. Um, and so when it was in the Blood Buddy uh, stage, that's where the line came from. But, you know, that got taken out because they're like, well, no parent's going to buy a doll that bleeds for their kid. Or, you know, yeah. so Holland rewrote a lot. I will say, I mean, like, you know, Don Mancini was very frustrated that voodoo became the element that caused, you know, the killer to come into the, the body. But, you know, he, he didn't have Charles Lee Ray in his original script. Blood, um, the, the doll was called Buddy, and it was originally just um, the doll that bled. And so and, uh, Andy cuts his thumb, and he cuts the thumb of the My Buddy doll, and they press them together, and that causes the supernatural... Uh, possession essentially of the doll and the doll was supposed to act far more like Andy's id like seeking vengeance on like bullies who had like wronged him and things like that but not uh, like actually aware to Andy the person Um, so that all of those changes that were made from Tom Holland coming on and John Lafia or Lafia whatever the pronunciation is of his last name who also did rewrites on the first like really created Chucky as the character and Charles E. Ray so you have to give a lot of credit there but I think Charles Play 2 is really Don Mancini getting a chance as the sole credited author to take what was established from the first film but also sort of retool it and retell a lot of elements from his original script that basically got scrapped. And so the fact that it works out really well is really fantastic. And we'll, you'll end up seeing that later on in the series as well. Uh, I'm sorry. I've only done, I've only sent in the notes to with Gorley and Russ for the first film, but just (laughs) like research on the first film. It's all in your brain. So much of the sequels. Yeah. So Uh, that's the fun thing about doing an actual franchise as opposed to those like individual movies I was doing with the spring King fling. Right. Whereas like, Oh, like it's all tied together. Um, so it's it's fun. Uh, I I did rewatch the climax just for this, and I knew it was going to be one of my higher mm. picks. There's also just a, a really yeah. great kill in the factory of a guy like working on the machine. Chucky like hits him over the head or something. He turns around and he it's the eyeball inserting machine that then goes <laughs> into his face. So his eyeballs yeah, are now yeah. dull eyeballs. It's, it's so yeah. It's great. It's really creative. And I think that, like we talked about, franchises sort of falling apart in the 90s, but Child's Play is where it kind of really found its footing and sort of established what kind of franchise it was going to be. And it yeah, and it re- poppy worth out the entire decade. So. <laughs> Yeah, and I was I didn't I don't again I don't want to step on any future picks, but it also revitalizes itself in the uh, '90s as well. Um, changes tones. Uh, it's funny. I was listening to Don on um, the um, postmortem with Mick Garris' interview, Nick, and oh, right, he was right. saying that 
he he sort of views the childhood franchise similar to like the Bond franchise, and that it's gone through all <laughs> these different like reimaginings and different tones and you know uh, things throughout the the years, and uh, and that it's been produced by David Kirshner the whole time, and he's been the writer on every movie too. So it's like they're, they're kind of like the Broccoli's essentially, oh, yeah. <laughs> who are like shepherding that franchise through the eras and everything. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's a great pick. I, I'm. It's probably smart that you grabbed it because that was pretty high on my list uh, as well. So great yeah, pick, Murph. Yeah. I also, always, it's a second Grace of Brisky movie aside from Twin Peaks Fire Walk. That's with true. Me, and so, oh, yeah. yeah she's yeah. a really interesting, uh, interesting she's in that as well. Absolutely, yeah. I, uh, Nick, I, oh, sorry. No, gonna, go ahead. I'm just thinking this is very like sort of stream of consciousness but um you were talking about like scream how scream reinvented the the slasher movie kind of and like mm-hmm. slasher was such a staple of the 80s and obviously i know the first child play was in the 80s but what it was towards the end of the decade and then i think what child's play one and two do very very well um is that they take the that sort of the ending that never ends that's such a staple of of slasher movies but it earns it because it makes sense that he's a doll. And so, like, it never feels cheap or whatever. It's, like, the one franchise <laughs> I can think of where, like, the ending that never ends really makes sense and, like, and, and functions very well. And I... It doesn't bother you. It doesn't yeah. bother you at all. And I think that yeah. 2 is the best example of that in the whole series. Um, when you're already so logically good. being like, oh, a doll can kill me, you're like, oh, sure. <laughs> it's not going to die, <laughs> yeah, yeah, obviously. Of course. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Anyway, um... But yes, uh, so I'm going to pick what is my favorite Robert Rodriguez movie of the night. Maybe his my favorite of his career, which is The Faculty. Um, oh, I really love, I know it might maybe, I mean, it's sci-fi horror, maybe just sci-fi to a lot of people. It's very Invasion of the Body Snatchers, of course, but there are a lot of horror elements. And it's just, I still find so much to love about that movie that's one another one that i can just really rewatch a lot and will always enjoy and i think um post scream you know it's 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 the hip i think it's like a hip like young teen cast and like i don't know if it would have come out so soon if scream hadn't been so successful but i'm so glad it did it's uh and it's interesting that robert rodriguez did it i don't know why um yeah i just find that fascinating i i I was like oh i mean you know 90s horror movies before this and that was one i was like oh okay yeah and click on him like i had totally just not remembered at all that it was him directing right but there are enough of the rodriguez flourishes in it and it's probably like i guess after dust till dawn it's his like big studio movie like that's was true. it Miramax or I'm trying to wonder. Yeah. yeah, it probably would have been. Yeah, yeah. Well, which uh, their dimension, right? Arm, those dimension uh, right. of it. Yeah, yeah. But that they were owned by Miramax, so you know, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's a good thing you you drafted that Nick, and I'm I'm kicking <laughs> myself. I mean, I only have myself to blame, I guess. But I mean, I I, I don't regret either of my other choices. But. Yeah, that would have gone in one of my back-to-backs here if you hadn't just taken <laughs> yeah, it. So true. you got it at the right time, sir. This is that's one, one of my favorite. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, of yeah. like the, no, no, I was gonna say this is one of my favorite of the post-scream studio horror yeah. films, uh, of which there are many. But this is, you know, probably my favorite of that era. Um, you know, it's it's a fantastic movie. I I love the essential. Re- 
essentially a retelling of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but set it with teens and, you know, high school and all that. And I think they did a amazing job. I, I performances all around are great. I think the reveal is really great mm-hmm. about yeah. like who's ultimately behind it. Um which, you know, you don't see coming. I think they do a fairly good job of disguising yeah. that. And um uh, and I thought it was, yeah, pretty pretty damn like good. script. Yeah, I really love mm-hmm. I think it's when the turn and like you find out the the main one. Uh it's just the shot where it's like the giant shape in the pool. Yeah. And then best. as it's getting to the barrier, like it it's getting smaller until that person emerges. I actually don't think Greg mm-hmm. has seen this movie. I yeah, I was gonna say oh. I had to sadly admit oh, uh, that I have not okay. watched this yet. Uh but I think yeah. this is this is one that probably will be done on the weekly podcast massacre in the it's, coming. It's months. been discussed mm. multiple times, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I All know right. it's like a major gap that I've been meaning to get to and I meant to get to before this recording, but I was trying to like catch up on some things I knew I wanted to pick as well as things I yeah. was you know, had not seen yet, like tremors, so I had to make some tough de- decisions and I didn't get to get to watch it, but uh, yeah. I feel like it no, gets unfairly forgotten. Like, I don't... I mean, mm. it just... It doesn't seem like it gets talked about enough. Um, I, and maybe it was yeah, overshadowed by the screams and the, you know, whatever. But it's like, great. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm glad we were very coy in how I just described it. Yeah. <laughs> because usually we say that, like, we're going to spoil a lot of movies, but I'm glad that I did it in a manner that wasn't too spoilery. Because oh, no, uh, if mean, you I, haven't I, seen I, it, Greg, I, I'm hoping you enjoy it. Yeah, none of that felt like like too much. or It was it was all it was all well done. Yeah, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, yeah, I, uh, again, great picnic. Uh, I would have just grabbed it with one of my back-to-backs here, but... Uh, now that uh, I am on the board here, um, let me take a look here. What do I have on my list? Because uh, this will be my fourth round selection. Um, and then I'll get the back-to-back with five. I'm going to take... Um, I'm going to take a movie I didn't get a chance to draft in our Halloween uh, franchise. And that is Halloween H2O, oh, nice. 20 years later. Uh, which I also realized after... Um, after we did the uh, Scream one and we were talking about like Scream 4 being one of those first like legacy sequels that's like a reboot quote but still like legacy and following in with the franchise and we were like yeah we can't really think of anything before that and then I realized oh no like <laughs> Halloween H2O is the first of the reboot quotes like disregards like a huge chunk of the previous films and only follows the first two uh, which then it redid again with Halloween 2018 just dropping even the second film from its lore um, but I look I know the mask looks like shit I know that people complain about like that aspect of it to no end. And I know that people kind of bemoan the like post scream, uh, you know, aspects of this as well. Like the, the following the high schoolers and, and all that stuff. But this has always had a soft spot in my heart. I love H2O. I think they do a really good job of portraying uh, Lori as an a functioning alcoholic but in a manner that's not over the top that's not too judgy or preachy that's done in a way that's like oh this is a woman trying to cope with her trauma and deal with i mean i think this franchise has you know done a fairly good job of like portraying characters 
who are dealing with their trauma, usually Lori, but others as well. Um, and they've done it in many different ways throughout these different like iterations of the franchise. And I think this is one that isn't too heavy handed and that is done fairly well. And you get, you really believe that she's a woman who is seeing Michael around every corner and so when she first sees him arrive at this private school, she almost doesn't believe it because she's just so used to seeing him in like a window reflection or something over her I was going to say, when they, because she's someone who's been hiding out forever. From when they him. meet face to face on that porthole, like that's a, that's a moment that's yeah. so earned in that movie. Like it was Absolutely. all over the trailer yeah. and you're like, yeah. oh, that's, but it, yeah, great, great, great moment. I, what you're talking yeah. about, like seeing him at, at, at you know at, at this school as opposed to like the neighborhoods of Haddonfield. If you're marathoning the the Halloween movies as well, which is what I was doing when I first watched this, it is such a nice change of of pace for that franchise too to get out mm-hmm. of the suburbs and place Michael in a different looking location. Uh, I think it wins a lot of points for that alone to like taking him away from the, the familiar iconography of the series. And still managing to do right by the character and placing him in a scenario where you could still get a lot of a lot of tension and, and it still works, even though it's like a bit of yeah. a change for that franchise. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, admittedly, I am not the biggest Michael Myers fan <laughs> of Halloween. It might it might be like mm. twenty years since I've seen this movie. Is this the one that ends in, like, a car thing and Michael gets pinned to trees? Yeah. They do the weird reaching thing before she cuts off his head. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a great (laughs) ending to a fucking movie. And then it kicks into the It's a great ending. I I remember, again, 20 years since I've seen... I'm not even the biggest fan of the first one, but the score (laughs) is always fantastic. But I... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that ending is uh, it sticks with you. Yeah, and that that movie yeah. as a whole is a really interesting like statement from uh, Jamie Lee Curtis too, and it's where it's like weirdly it's not as reverential of the first film or that role or like the franchise as you would think. It is kind of like Jamie like Lee Curtis revealing a lot of anger towards that franchise. It seems like for like defining her career for so long. And kiting her, you know, getting her like this label as like a scream queen, you could see it as both a blessing and a curse for like the types, maybe the other types of roles she wanted to break into. And but you know, having this reputation of being in a, in a movie that well known for being, you know, well known for being like a horror victim, essentially. Like H two O does really interesting meta things that were all the rage, of course, because of Scream. But it does have something interesting to say with that meta aspect. I think it's. Yeah. I'll admit I have to see the 2018 movie again. It's been a while. Um, I liked it a lot, but I, I don't think I was as fond of it as a lot of people were. Um, I think yeah. if I had to choose between 2018 and H2O, honestly, I might pick H2O, even if it's not oh, like yeah. as well-made it's a movie. It's easy Absolutely. decision for me. It's, it's just more fun, a, yeah. I yeah. think. And Same I honestly, here. I like, it's, I found it kind of disappointing I think when she was doing press for the 2018 version, maybe it wasn't then, maybe I don't remember, but at some point more recently, Jamie Lee Curtis looking back on her Halloween career. Now she's done so many of these movies. And, um, she was looking back on H2O and I think she very candidly said like, well, yeah, that was a paycheck movie. Like they offered me a shitload of money. And so I said, yes, but like, I like her character in H2O much better than I like her yeah. character in 2018. I 
does buy not it feel like a paycheck more. performance. Yeah. yeah. It's like exactly. she's pouring her all onto that. Yeah, and she's like, she has, it's has, believable. That, yeah. There's that scene when she's finally describing to, I think it's her fiance or her husband, right? Um, she's, uh, the guy she's seeing. I don't think yeah, they're right. engaged. That's it, yeah. It's Adam Arkin, right? Right, Adam yeah. Arkin, yeah. When she is finally yeah. revealing her past. Yeah. Like, that, that monologue she gives is genuinely moving. And, like, mm-hmm. she has poured her all into that. And it feels so much more true to life than anything the 2018 one did. Yeah. And so, yeah, I was similarly very kind of disheartened when she was saying that stuff on the tour. Like, I heard the whole publicity tour. Because it's like, I mean, it's really not exa- how the movie comes off at all. No. And I think you're not giving it enough credit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's directed by Steve Miner, too, who I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, me too. Also directed house and uh friday the 13th part two when lake placid and i think that he yeah uh with the limitations of having a really awful mask like you mentioned he still manages mm-hmm. to shoot a really effective movie yeah and uh oh, it, yeah. it's even got some crazy broad 90s comedic relief that's not annoying with uh <laughs> l.o cool j playing a really fun like you know side character in that. yeah i know i was never bothered by any yeah. of that i always liked that um yeah, it's just just enough of it. It's not overdone. It's you know, he's got a comedic bit and a comedic game that he sticks to, and it's it's funny. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that was a great choice. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you. Um, well, I'm gonna follow this big budget '90s franchise sequel and go to another big budget franchise sequel. Um, one of the three possible Child's Play films has already been drafted of, of the '90s has already been drafted. So. I'm going to take one of the other ones, and I'm going to take Bride of Chucky here wow. with my fifth round selection. Nice. First pick of the fifth round. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a run on these or what, but I just <laughs> feel like I want to get what I can. And uh, uh, yeah, Nick and I did our a, uh, uh, an episode, just the two of us, talking about the Child's Play franchise. And I think both of us were just really shocked and blown away watching them all. Just how truly like pretty decent to great most of them are and how consistent the franchise is as a whole and you know this is the one that really revitalizes the franchise takes it into new territory takes into a different tone really piles on the horror comedy that will get piled on even more as you get into seat of chucky but it's I mean, look, there's the premise of the films is inherently sort of ridiculous. And so it's easy. It's possibly an easier order for this film franchise to go into the uh, broader comedy elements because it's sort of a ridiculous premise to begin with. Uh, At the same time, I think it really nails it uh, in Bride of Chucky. And um, I think this also is the one that really gave Don Mancini a lot of permission to really really go in directions i think he really enjoyed going in um, go weird or go you know, home the, the films often exactly, exactly. Yeah. and the films <laughs> often get these like that the camp label put on them especially bride and seed of chucky especially seed of chucky um and i don't know how don feels about that but it is it is like a pretty campy movie, but in a very fun and entertaining way. Um, you know, personally, I think Seed goes a little too far off the deep end. There's a <laughs> lot of stuff I love in Seed, but it's almost like it's like too much. Yeah, like, yeah. To the point that I, I'm taken out of the movie. We covered that. Ride is that like... 
Yeah, Cena's yeah. the only one in the franchise that we talked about in our podcast, and it was a, it was my pick. Yeah, I love that stupid, okay. stupid movie. I really love uh, it. It too. does go, it goes too far, yeah. but it is like such a weird, bizarre film. Uh, mm-hmm. And like Jennifer Tilly's like performance, and talking about meta, that is like some yeah. of the best meta work I've seen <laughs> in a horror movie. <laughs> oh yeah, what is that? Yeah, yeah, we talked about it a lot. On we the did episode. her line about bound. I forget exactly what the line yes. was. Oh, yeah. one of the funniest things I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Is that someone screaming? No, that's I'm bound yeah, on the TV. It's just Jennifer Tilly fingering me yeah, or something, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> or it's just Dina yeah, Gershon. Yeah. What I yeah, sorry. Yeah. sorry. I messed it yeah, up. I messed Bright it up. Is a, but Bright is a fantastic like mix of like, yeah, the, the ridiculousness of seed that's coming up and then the more yeah. You know, I I hate to say grounded, but <laughs> you know the, the slightly <laughs> well, <laughs> more grounded place it started in. Uh, uh, yes, it strikes a better balance. Yeah. yeah, between the two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and, and it's got such a love yeah. of things like I mean, it's very obvious, but Bride of Frankenstein. It really is mm-hmm. reverential to that stuff in a way that's really like fun, and and it, it makes it such a great like you know. Uh, I don't know. Like it just fits right in with the like th- those types of horror, like a gothic horror movie in a way. And yeah. and with mentioning Frankenstein, like it's it's the look of Chucky that changes is amazing. Yeah. Mm. And that's the that's mm-hmm. the look that when I was a kid I had in my head was the stitched together yeah right of Chucky missing version. part of that's the, the hair. One that, yeah. Like it, that's it, the one I was having mm-hmm. nightmares about. Yeah. <laughs> It's so much more striking and and just visually scary compared to the original, and it uh, yeah, it, it's a good pick. It was yeah, gonna happen complete with oh, two like upcoming movie stars that you know like Catherine Heigl as well, oh, right? Like, in mm-hmm. in that movie, it's got that fun aspect to it. Like uh, yeah, that's, that's a that's a fantastic pick. That's a really weird oh. use of star, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and speaking of actor, (laughs) I was going to say, speaking of things being recycled from earlier. So, you know, the, the meta elements of Bride of Chucky, I think, you know, everyone's obviously there's lots of inspiration and and a lot of leeway given in the, in the post scream era. But the, this is another thing I've come across is that the idea to have um, the evidence locker with like Freddie's glove and the chainsaw and, and, and all that stuff. That actually was in originally in Child's Play two, but like didn't it got taken out I think, and so it got again reused in Bride of Chucky. Also, Jennifer Tilly getting electrocuted in the tub is how Ah. Aunt Maggie is originally supposed to die in the first Child's Play that got changed to the hammer head to the head. So that was some more things getting recycled into uh, Bride of Chucky from the original screenplay. Uh, so anyway, so there's just again, it all ties together with this <laughs> franchise because it's had like one writer, well, one writer for all seven, but you know who got a lot of help on the first one. So yeah, anyway, yeah, Bride of Chucky. That's great. Uh, that whole tub scene is such a fantastic set piece. Like they really yeah. managed to give it like dramatic heft when it happens. It's it's yeah, it's really mm-hmm. impressive. Well, and speaking of the Bride of Frankenstein elements, it ent- it, it brings electricity into it, which is how, of <laughs> yeah. course, they're brought to life. So just another tie-in uh, right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's my fifth round selection. Nick, you're up with your fifth round choice. Yes. Uh, okay. I'm going to go with the other Peter Jackson movie, The Frighteners. That I think... mm. No one's picked that yet, uh, right? No. I forgot if... Okay. Nope. So nope. I'll go with The Frighteners. Um 
I don't know, Brantley, when you were talking about him breaking into, like, American, you know, Hollywood, were you referring to Heavenly Creatures or the Frighteners? Because was Heavenly Creatures or Heavenly Creatures was still made uh, as part he of He still the, made that in New, New Zealand, Zealand I believe. But it got yeah, I mean, I think distribution. It, mm-hmm. yes. it did. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I was, yeah, I guess what my reference was specifically to, like, being brought over to America to make your first American feature film. Um, and you can't and so, get much more American sorry. than having Michael J. Fox yeah. as the lead role in your yeah. movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I. So it's funny. We. Um, I'm like part of a, a just a casual group of friends who would like obviously since the pandemic haven't seen each other, so we do like occasionally we'll we'll watch movies and they, I I actually didn't see this one but they watched The Frighteners as one of the weekly movies um and they were like no one had seen the director's cut which I haven't seen either and so they they picked the director's cut to watch and no one liked it everyone felt that the director's cut was oh. a big step down from the theatrical cut wow. um mm. I'm only bringing that up cuz I haven't I haven't seen the director's cut so I can't speak to that at all but I am curious um but like I love the theatrical cut so much I almost don't even want to like I don't see the value in um i just think it's a it's great balance of comedy horror i think um it has like an actually compelling kind of like mystery um through line trying to figure out like and jake Busey is incredible michael j fox obviously is awesome um it's just jeffrey combs yeah oh yes Mm -hmm. of course and um and the effects are great um like to this day i think like pretty cutting edge yeah you know for that for the genre especially all the all the ghosts look great i i do do really love the uh jake Busey's grim reaper-esque like it's 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 not perfect like it's definitely 90s but it is effective of what it's going for yeah 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 right i know it's got some like creepy moments and it yeah it's it's i think that is a great like i know heavenly creatures was like kind of his big maybe turning point to but i think frighteners is like a nice balance between his early days and then like his more like what he is now and frighteners kind of like straddles that line um still got some of that early peter jam jackson like kind of camp for sure um mm-hmm. but it's also just an incredibly like competently made like confidently made really uh film <laughs> uh Great movie. I know. I really like it. Uh, it has a, just such a great opening as well. Well, I don't know if it's the like official opening, but as the ghost are fucking with the girl yeah. and her husband in the house, <laughs> and he just comes in and he's got the gun that turns out to be a squirt gun. Right. <laughs> like, there's just so many great moments in that opening part of like oh he's a he's a cheap ghostbuster and then it turns out that he's a con man he is right, basically right, yeah. what peter vankman would be if he could commune with the dead right <laughs> i think that's the only movie that could end and, with don't fear the reaper and like you feel like okay that didn't just ruin it i can walk out of the theater hearing don't fear the reaper and i'm like still fine it's great mm-hmm well, and and 
what I wanted to say, like, what, the reason I felt like he had, like, a, an interesting eventual transition, because obviously, you know, if he was considered or, like, going to do Trials by 3 and then didn't, and then The Frighteners was originally going to be a Tales from the... Wasn't this originally going to be a Tales from the Crypt film? Like, in the, in the same manner yeah. that Demon Knight was and Bordello of Blood? And then... I forget, I thought, I don't know if this is definitively accurate or not, but I had heard someone be like, this is too good, don't attach it to Tales from the Crypt, that's a sinking ship, basically. <laughs> like, like the, the film, specifically, not oh, like the man. show, but like, like <laughs> yeah. Demon Knight did good, but then like, you know, they, um, I don't know if Bordello of Blood is, was in the making or something, and they knew it was going to be garbage or whatever, but they're like, don't, like, do keep this separate, because don't don't attach it to Tales was from it the Robert Crypt, Was it Robert Zemeckis who was involved with Tales from the Crypt? Am I? Yes, it was. Yeah. So it was like, yes. was it like yep, they yep. were going to do Tales from the Crypt and Robert Zemeckis was like, no, this is too good, but you couldn't have Michael J. Fox. <laughs> like, oh, I have no and... idea. Good question. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course he had yeah. control over. Yeah. 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 I can vouch for this guy. He's pretty good. You might like <laughs> him. <for> the movie. <laughs> yeah. And and another child's play connection, Kevin Yeager, who designed the the Chucky doll and and made it work with all the animatronics, designed the the Crypt Keeper uh, and uh, had him did all the animatronics for that right, as yeah. well. So. I think I think one of the one of the animatronics in Child's Play is a Crypt Keeper, right? I think, or it's like they share an animatronic, Chucky and the Crypt Keeper, like they were reskinned at some point, one to be the. I other. know that. I know that Chucky's eyes were used to okay, maybe that's and what put into the Crypt yeah. Keeper. So it might be the, they, they share the same eyes, basically, I think. That might be it. Because um, Child's Play came before he designed the Crypt Keeper, I believe. I think that's what I'm I mean, he was of, young. Yeah. <laughs> he was 25 years old, running his own company, Jaeger FX, and like creating an animatronic doll that had never been done before that could walk and move on its own. I mean, animatronics have been done a bunch, but never a like animatronic doll and never one that like had to actually like walk on its own and everything. I mean, not that it did in every shot, but for a bunch of them. So it's just crazy to me. Like, <laughs> like this dude was 25 years old and this like studio film hinged on his ability to make something happen that had never been made to happen before. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Anyway, sorry, I, I don't mean to keep injecting child's <laughs> oh, play no, facts no, into this. It's just my world oh, I've been I, living I, I in for a while. It. So. Don't sweat it. <laughs> this is catnip. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, well, great pick, Nick. Uh, Murph, you are up with uh, your fifth round selection. All right, I, I'm going to go for another sequel, which I think tops <laughs> Child's Play 2. I, we recorded an episode today, and I, I talked about it briefly. But just one, I I think, one of the best movies of all time. One of the best sequels of all time. I'm going to go with uh, June 15th, 1990, director Joe Joe Dante doing Gremlins 2. Oh my god. Ah, This is a a huge blow to my list. It is is one of the most, like, perfect fucking movies of all time. As I was saying, uh... The way to do a, a good sequel is to up the stakes. And the first one is all about the Kingston Falls. If if everything goes bad, that town is taken over. Now it's the like one of the most popular biggest cities in the world. And you have such great actors like uh, John Glover, Robert Prosky come in. You have Tony Randall doing the voice of the brain <laughs> gremlin. The uh, spider gremlin may be one of the just 
scariest things ever put to film. It's just so... uh, The sound design of it with the visuals is just horrifying. Uh, You also have... I can't remember which gremlin it is, but he... Uh, ties up the the old man and is like going to do dental work on him, and is then referencing Marathon Man. Is it secret? Is it safe? <laughs> With these crazy eyes, uh, you also have like the cutest Gizmo who puts on a bandana after watching like five minutes of a Rambo movie. <laughs> the last I, I, time I watched Gremlins two, that was the detail. Uh, when he is being tortured by the, by uh, the Mohawk Gremlin, and he has that sudden flashback to the Rambo quote, mm-hmm. it, that just comes out of nowhere. That is the hardest I've laughed at a movie. When I rewatched that, I, I could not contain myself. Yeah, we talked about this more because our entire theme for this the month that we're currently recording is sequels. We've been talking a lot about sequels lately, and this came up today as like. Uh, just as a, I guess we talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 that was today's film and we were discussing how both that and Gremlins 2 are good sequels because they have this sense that they, the filmmakers know they can't top themselves if they just like go back to the same well it's not going to be the same they're not going to be mm-hmm. they, they don't want to repeat themselves so or in, in a normal way like you might expect they're going to parody their own work and it is such it just leads to such insane decisions and like a really bizarre feeling movie that never like it, it is like the most uh it's joe dante so it's a live action cartoon but it is like making such wild decisions and nailing them visually for yes. like you know like just the the quality of the puppets in that and what they're able to do with them oh and yeah all rick the baker stupid visual gags they pull off so good yeah like uh you know the, the entire stop motion sequence with a bat gremlin because a bat gremlin, a, a gremlin drank bat DNA in a science lab run by Christopher Lee. Oh, in, I didn't like, even mention Christopher Lee. Super corporate building. Yeah, Christopher Lee play, doing a, an excellent comedic performance. Uh, and just like one a of the perfect parody of like Mad Scientists. One yeah. of the best things about that bat scene is as it comes out and it's attacking the guy. I can't think of his name. Uh, right off. Oh, Dick Miller. Yeah. Dick Miller. That is Dick Miller. Um, you have all these other New Yorkers just passing by, and they could not give <laughs> less of a fuck about a giant gremlin attacking someone. Uh, you also yeah. have, and it's it's just one of the best meta moments I think in any movie where you the film stops and you have gremlins in the projector booth, and then you have. Uh, I can't remember, like a Paul Blatt or something, come as the usher, goes and talks to Hulk Hogan, who is a a patron <laughs> of the movie. And then they get him to say, like, oh, you know, can you do something about this? It's so good. Yeah. It's It just, it tops everything from the original. And it, immensely, the whole idea of the ending where they get them wet before like they electrocute them and you're like uh what's going on here yeah i mean it's, it's it's just off the wall to a to like it's just it is really fascinating they were they got away with what they did i mean you have an electric gremlin they come know, in electric now drink a potion <laughs> yeah and uh it's just funny that like uh, somehow this all this movie doesn't fall apart with all of its like 
you know bizarre choices it remains very funny and like you know and silly and still has like a really like great anti-corporate message and like you know sentiment behind it like there's a real sort of like disdain for you know uh like sanitized like you know corporate um Uh, like gentrification like it's 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 uh it's a really fascinating movie on top of being like the silliest thing in the world what, and what's the line with the over the intercom it's like they're gonna play casablanca tonight uh in color and now with a happy ending exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh it, it just sets up I mean, it's 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 funny you said that it is like raising the stakes but it weirdly is more contained as well than the original like just being in this a single location they have a weird excuse to have like everything in this building because it like they all ties into the idea that like this you know the clamp industries that they literally have taken over every like facet of the market you know and so you have this brilliant excuse to have the gremlins interact with all these different things and like do the craziest stuff and it still like fits into the world and the theme of the movie yeah that's a wonderful pick. I, every time Gremlins 2 comes up, all I think is the key and Yes, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's going around like, that is in the movie. <laughs> anyway, uh, wonderful picks. Uh, Greg, why don't you bring us home here with your uh, pick here in the fifth round and the uh, end of the first half of the mega draft of the 90s horror films. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm going to go for... Um... Uh, another huge like subgenre that I, I get into and have uh, been a major fan of for a long time are zombie films, and so I wanted to pick a '90s zombie movie. And for a little bit, I was kind of like thinking that it may not have been like the greatest decade for a lot of zombie films. Like, there's like there's some really classic ones in there. There's like the remake of Night of the Living Dead that Tom Savini did that yep. a lot of people were fans of. But I had to go with one that mm-hmm. I think. Um, really made an impression on me and has like stuck with me for a long time and is like a zombie movie that's a little different because it comes from Italy but I want to talk about Cemetery Man. Oh man, uh, I'm so upset that you got uh, that one. my pick. <laughs> I waited too long. Oh man, thank God I did it on this one. I've uh, never because... seen this. I, I have no clue. Oh wow. It's a, it's a really interesting movie. It's not your typical zombie movie. It's something much more like um, I don't know. It's it's hard to get bleaker than a lot of zombie movies. Like obviously, it's a genre that can lend itself well to comedy too. But like this one is is it really leans into like the existential like dread of what zombies mean. Like the fact that the dead are returning, and it really is like it's it's so angsty. It is so angsty. Um, it is just like essentially it's about a, it's about a grave uh, digger. Uh, in uh, named uh, <laughs> Francesco della Morte, and he works in the cemetery where his job is to shoot the dead as they rise. Like um, hmm. I think it's I think it's like once a week, all the freshly buried bodies will rise, and he has to shoot them in the head in order to kill them. And it is about the like the philosophical toll this takes on this guy until it drives him insane, or he can't tell if he's going insane or if, if what's just going on. He starts to question his own life and reality and what is love. He ends up falling in love with a recent widow who comes to attend her husband's funeral. 
they end up fucking in the crypt of the cemetery like an hour later um she that actress who plays that woman ends up playing several different roles and each time she appears the movie becomes more and more inscrutable until you get to like an ending that like really does leave you cold and questioning like everything uh it's it's like i said there's so much angst in this movie it just feels like every line is some form it's just like francesco asking these really weird existential questions about everything and like you know being just in this sort of like dreamlike state that you can't wake you know wake up from where zombies are like zooming around the motorcycle the the, the, the cemetery on motorcycles like you know heads are rolling around and falling in love with people and like it's uh it's such a fun bizarre ride um and the director michael suave is like he was like a um like a student of dario argento and uh it's it really it fits well into the giallo subgenre as well it's like the that subgenre was kind of dying out by the time the 90s rolled around but this was a movie coming out of like a horror movie coming out of italy that like has a lot of that DNA, but is doing its own very surreal, strange thing with zombies. And like, uh, it, it's, it makes for like a really interesting film. Uh, it's like funny and disgusting, but also like inherently it, it's asking so many questions. It, it becomes, you know, kind of deep, uh, even though like some of the questions it's asked, like make zero sense that are just like nonsense you know with what's going on like as it gets it gets so to a, such a crazy level that like it's it seems like it's it's overwhelming with how you know how confusing it can get but in a way that works well with the rest of the film so, so uh yeah it's <laughs> i it's i'll admit it's been a while since i've seen it i have the i remember when the dvd came out i bought it because the new york times i think did a piece about like rupert everett being in this <laughs> italian zombie movie yeah um and uh and so my recollection is a little bit hazy, but I, I do think it's interesting. I think it's it's basically like an art house zombie comedy, um, you know, from Italy, where like I mean, I I would argue that Italy has like it was known for some like zombie gore films, um, for sure. I mean, like Zombie Two, and um, anyway, um, but it's yeah, it's also like an art house zombie movie. I can't think of another zombie movie like that where um like you said, where it's like asking a lot of philosophical questions, but it's also made, um, you know, you think of zombie two and stuff and like, it's a, it's a, the makeup is incredible, but I don't think of it as like a great looking film, but cemetery (laughs) man, as I recall, is a very good looking movie. It's like beautifully shot. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the cemetery they shot a lot of it in a real like Italian cemetery, so it has like wonderful atmosphere. But then they built all the crypts and all the like, it, it's got wonderful production design and it's really creative with how a lot of it is filmed. Like you have this great setup where uh, the main character Francesco he has an assistant who lives in the cemetery with him, and the way their two rooms are positioned, like one is above the other, and they are always shooting through the floorboards, looking at talking to each yeah. other. And it adds such an interesting flavor to that area and like really, you know, it's it's very, like I already said the word dreamlike, but it's very dreamlike in the way it's all done. And there's a lot of brilliant like sweeping camera movements across like, through the cemetery, through the crypts. Uh, yeah, it's it, it impeccably made. Yeah. Uh, 
Nick, quick question. When you're talking about art house zombie films, are you excluding Idle Hands from that list? <laughs> I don't remember Idle Hands. I, I haven't seen that okay, movie okay. since. It's been 20 years, so... Um, I, I just so had to forget what I said. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and then like parts of cemetery. I mean, cemetery. It has incredible practical effects. Like if you are into gore, as I am, I, I tend to be kind of a, a gore hound. Like it's got some mm-hmm. really really awesome, uh, like makeup in there, yeah. and like really, there's a lot of again a lot of getting shot in the head. Some great squib work. Yeah. You know, of like <laughs> brains being splattered all over walls and. Uh, it, it does remind me a lot too. I, I kind of tend to lump it together with Dead Alive a lot and the, that feeling it gives me sometimes because it, it, there's some aspect, there's a lot of vomit in this one as well. Um, it's a really disgusting vomit scene in Cemetery Man that makes, gives me that same feeling that like Dead Alive does. So I, I tend to kind of associate those two movies together. Um, and I mm-hmm. think this is like, I, I didn't mention the Brain Dead, but like, or I keep saying to the title, but Brain Dead, Dead Alive. But um the emotional story in that one is actually kind of like it's well done the story of this guy trying to escape his mother and i i find that that and cemetery man have a similar like i don't know they're questioning a lot of this a lot of similar ideas about like manhood (laughs) and like you know Mm. what it means to be considered a man and like you know some sexual repression in there and it's it's yeah, so I, I think it's a really fascinating film and one that I, I come to rewatch all the time, trying to figure out something else that I don't understand about it. Because and there's still a lot. <laughs> That's a great. Is it? Has there been a proper Blu-ray release for that? Like I have the DVD, but I would no. I the DVD I have, I bought second. I bought like used, and it was out of print. Yeah, so it was kind of expensive. But like, I I I paid <laughs> kind of a higher price for this DVD because it's pretty rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've yeah I have the DVD and. Is there any other way to watch it at this point? I gotta look that up because I would love to see like not a that I know of. I, yeah, I don't think it's it's not it's not been remastered or anything or you know uprest. Yeah, I feel like it's begging for that. That would be a great. It really is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's an awesome choice. I'm uh, I'm so sorry that I waited, <laughs> but yeah, I gotta I gotta check this out. Yeah, it's it's really fun stuff. All right, well, that's a great pick. And to recap this first half of the 90s horror film Mega Draft, uh, Greg, in the first round, you took Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. In the second round, you took Bram Stoker's Dracula. In the third, Barton Fink, Army of Darkness in the fourth. And then you wrapped it up with Cemetery Man in the fifth. Murph, you took the Blair Witch Project in the first round. Seven in the second round. From Dusk Till Dawn in the third. Child's Play 2 in the 4th, and then Gremlins 2, the new batch, in the 5th. Nick, you took Silence of the Lambs in the 1st round, Misery in the 2nd, Dead Alive in the 3rd, The Faculty in the 4th, and The Frighteners in the 5th. And then I took Scream with the 1st overall pick in the 1st round, Tremors in the 2nd round, Idle Hands in the 3rd, Halloween H2O in the 4th, and Bride of Chucky in the 5th. That is going to conclude this first half of the 90s horror film Mega Draft. Stay tuned next week where we will be giving you the second half and wrapping up uh, round 6 through 10 of the 90s horror Mega Draft. Uh, In the meantime, check out the weekly podcast Massacre, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. 
The song you heard in this episode is You Are a Monster by Monroeville Music Center. It's being used under a CCBY Creative Commons license and was accessed from freemusicarchive.org. If you'd like to hear more of Monroeville Music Center, you can find them on Bandcamp, their Facebook page, YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Discogs, iHeartRadio, and Deezer. And hey, if you want to reach out and communicate with us, please send an email to horrordraftspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at horrordrafts, all one word. We'd love to hear any questions you have for us, suggestions for topics to draft, or ideas for guests, especially if you can put us in touch with them. Thanks everyone, and we hope to hear from you soon. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.